right. And hello, good day. And thank you all for coming by another Merged Worlds Dungeons and Dragons story stream. Uh, podcast thing. <laughs> A lot of different names for it. Um, but I definitely appreciate you all coming by and hanging out with us today. I am excited to get into the story. Uh, again, we are getting to a, uh, I guess you could say, a large climax of the storyline at this point. Um, while we're beginning here, I've got a couple of things I'm just doing off camera here a little bit. I actually have just came across a couple of the maps of some of the areas we're going to be talking about today. So I'm loading those up so I can show those to you guys. Because uh, I said I was going to try to do better with that. So uh, hopefully we can get these loaded up here. I've got uh, some pictures of some characters and such we're going to see as well. Some we've talked about. Uh, one that I'm 50-50 on. And I may reach out and see what you guys think. If uh, you can find another actor or celebrity that might fit the character better. I'm a little 50-50 on one of these uh, in my head, I, I, I know what I want, but I haven't been able to find someone who represents it. So I'd be intrigued to see if uh, you all can think of someone that I could not. Uh, but uh, again, more than anything else, thank you all for coming by and spending some time with me and letting me share my story with you all. So it is uh, very, very important to me and I probably my favorite thing that I get to do on the channel. So um, we'll give it just a minute here and then I'm going to jump in and... Um, just do a brief recap of where we left off, and then we'll jump into this week's story. Um, as always, if you enjoy yourself, you're having a good time, please remember to click like. But most importantly, please remember to hit subscribe, so that way you can hang out with us if you've not done that in the past. So, um, Our last story, where we left off. So our intrepid heroes um, are seeking basically what's known as the the source um they have these magical weapons that they fought to get a hold of for years your several years of their life at this point but they don't know where to take them um the demigod zoltan who gave them this quest has been mysteriously absent and not shown up to give them any further guidance of what to do next um and they had very little luck figuring out where the source whatever that is supposedly is um Artemis, a cleric of healing, um, was sent a vision by her god, Tavian, um, telling her to go north. Uh, visions came to a couple other people, a young uh, cleric of the same order named Misha, and a knight templar of the church named Lucas. And uh, they are accompanying um, Artemis, Mercy, Darshan Dandy north, um, on this quest. Also accompanying with them is Ulrich, um, who is uh, the newest minion uh, or sidekick of, of uh, Mercy, a uh, young knight himself who swore allegiance to her. And en route to the north, uh, they came across another gentleman named uh, Quan, who had been studying them for a while, who has also joined up under Mercy's name. Um, so they traveling north, um, Dandy doesn't have anybody with them. Darsh didn't bring anything with, anybody with him. Uh, so they don't have any sidekicks with them. Even though Darsh has a lot of sidekicks back on his ship, uh, they are basically in port. And there was a question about that after last month's stream. What is his crew doing while they're out adventuring? Um, the primary crew, the named crew, are basically still on the payroll. Uh, so they're 
basically sitting there in case it's needed. Now, down the future, he may, you know, start working on trade and the ships and stuff could go and do business while he's out doing other things. But for right now, with it being relatively new, um, the named crew, the folks that have rank, are basically still on the payroll, ready to go whenever he needs them. Um, and then miscellaneous crew are basically released, and then um, Dorum, his uh, first mate, can restock those between adventures or when people are needed. Um, so his crew is all back in Pax Wall at this point. They didn't bring any with them, and Dandy just doesn't have anybody since they lost Michael. Um, but they are heading north. Once they got to North, they came to an area that uh, had several small towns in it. Um, these small towns used to be part of a larger kingdom that uh, after the Merge World, the majority of the kingdom did not come through, just this area of several towns. Uh, but these towns have for many years, uh, that, that kingdom uh, was very heavily taxed, very violent, the people were very much mistreated. Um, merge happened, they were like, oh, we're kind of free, and then almost uh, very soon after that, um, I guess what you call them, brigands, slavers, whatever, started to appear um, from the west and started terrorizing the towns as well as kidnapping um, people as well as murder and kidnapping and uh, people from the towns and the countryside and the farms around it. Around that same time, the area began to experience an issue with crops dying and animals getting sick. Uh, people as well. Um, whether it's connected or not, nobody knew, but it's all around the same time period. Uh, let's see, Jim says, your lighting looks really good. Thank you. I've been tweaking it <laughs> as best I can to try to make it a little better each time. Um, let's see, so they, uh, knowing this, they went to the main town of Moonbrook uh, and spoke with Dabs, who is the mayor, um, and they agreed to go west to check on another small town that they hadn't heard from in a few weeks. And when they got there, the town was pretty much gone. It was just obliterated. Uh, they followed tracks and such to a what looks like an, an old quarry or a small mine. Um, and inside they found uh, many of the kidnapped villagers. Um, and they also um, found a gentleman named Seamus, who was a very large dude. Um, he was a member, of, he was one of the townsfolk in that area. And they were holding his sister basically captive forcing him to kind of guard over the others. Um, so they managed to save Seamus' sister, and they saved it. So Seamus helped them, and they all joined up and uh, managed to defeat what few guards were there, because most of the people at the quarry had already left to terrorize more towns. Um, and they managed to make it back to Moonbrook, where they set up defense, because, of course, later that day, all the forces of um, the brigands, or slavers, whatever you want to call them, um, did attack the city. So there was a big battle that night. Seamus, of course, also joining on to become a minion of mercy at that point, um, was involved in the protection of the town. They were successful. We had the Moonbrook Drift, which was a exciting little uh, wagon moment, which I was very proud of back in the day. Um, and then uh, I was successful. Uh, they rested. Enemies defeated. They're basically heroes in the town. Uh, within a day or so after resting and such, uh, they're visited by... Oh. Uh, thank you very much for the follow. I appreciate that. Uh, Krishillin 300? 3,000? 300. Okay, hope I said that right. <laughs> um, but the uh, Lars and Wade Owens, um, two rangers who lived in the woods to the north, 
uh, had arrived to say that something had uh, was infecting or causing damage to the woods, and they had gone to a small temple of Tavian, which is in those woods, where the old cleric that lived there named Kevin told them to come here and seek out Artemis. So he knew, whoever the cleric was, knew they were coming. Uh, Lars and Wade, uh, friends of Seamus, hearing all about the adventures and the things that had happened and what the heroes had done, also very quickly um, become enamored of Mercy, not in a romantic way, but more in a hero worship kind of thing. Um, and they agree to uh, take them up to the temple, where they do. Once they get to the temple, um, everyone is told to leave except for Artemis, Lucas, Misha, and Mercy. Um, and they are shown that underneath the altar is a hidden stairway that leads down into a cavern um, with has very magical healing waters, known as Tavian's Tears. Um, and that's what makes this land holy and makes... I didn't get into this detail, but basically healing spells and such um, that are cast... Uh, of, of Tavian's spell spheres on what is considered this land within a specific range of the tiers um, are more potent. They're more powerful here. Um, it's holy ground in general, so clerics of good would always, you know, and even neutral would be, would be benefit there. It'd be a little harder for clerics of evil to come onto the, this type of property. Um, but only clerics of Tavian or healing spells in general would, would receive that boost. And basically the way I said that was any healing spell cast on the grounds within range, because there is a range of, of, you have to be, it can't be just anywhere in the countryside nearby, um, is cast at uh, max capability. So hypothetically on the D&D &D side, if, it, if the healing spell was 3d8, that means you get between 3 and 24 by rolling that. It's always going to be 24. You're always going to get the maximum roll. And thank you, Fine Yuen, for the follow. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Um, so it's always rolled as, as maximum when you're here. And that was a, something cool to add into this area. Uh, because, I mean, how often do your adventures happen at home? So it didn't really affect them out in adventuring. But while they're home, it would make sense to why this was such an important area. Holy ground, if you will. Um, Artemis was basically given um, the choice by Tavian the God... Uh, to accept a responsibility um, to be the new keeper of this land to take over from Kevin and to destroy a great evil that is in north in the woods. She accepted that responsibility and when she awoken she felt something inside of her. Like uh, Basically the best way to say it is like a giant source of magic that was there that wants out but she doesn't know how to let it out. Like she doesn't know, there's just, she can feel the presence of Tavian and in way more magic than she would normally have the ability to use, like a ball just kind of inside of her. And uh, at this time, she knows that she needs to use it to do whatever against this thing in the north, but at this point, she doesn't know how. The other thing that was promised by the vision is that once they get, one, if they're able to succeed up here in the north, they will find the answer to the question that they've sought for a long, for a long time. So the question everyone's hoping is, is that where the source is? Uh, will this finally lead them to where they need to open up Merge World, or cause whatever happens to happen. So, that's where we left off. Um, they agreed, she agreed, they're going to go north. Uh, so they spend basically just a part of a day or a day resting there at the uh, temple. Um, only Misha and Artemis and um, the little girl that I'm forgetting her name, the little girl that was there. Uh, give me one second. I'm drawing a blank here. It was Trevor. 
Uh, ah, there we go. Uh, so yes, Tavian, Carmen clear again. Short. Uh, Mia. Yeah, Mia's the little girl that he's been raising who's basically orphaned there. Um, she is not a cleric. I stress that out. It's been asked. She is not. She is just a young girl who's basically helping him there and kind of treats him like a grandpa kind of thing. Um, I would say that she lost her parents a couple years ago and that was the beginning of all this mess that was happening in the area. I'd say her family was the farmers and she managed to hide kind of thing. That was her story. She hid in the house while everyone else was killed or taken and um, found by the cleric, not knowing else to do. He just brought her home with him and been taking care of her the last few years. Uh, Fuji says, sorry I'm late. No, you're fine. I was just doing the recap. So we're about to jump into the story now. So um, only those ones I mentioned are really get to see Kevin. He's in poor health himself. Artemis, of course, overchecks him to see if there's something, you know, is there an illness or something that's affecting him? And it's not. It's just old age, uh, which is not something that can be healed because um, that's not actually a disease. It's not an injury. It's just the effect, effect of life. Um, so uh, Tavian, basically his magic is the god of healing is that just that. He heals unnatural pain and unnatural death, but natural death is part of the life cycle and he doesn't really interfere with that normally. There are exceptions. So, deciding to go north, um, basically everybody's going to go except for Mia and uh, Kevin, of course. She's going to stay there to look after him. Uh, our four heroes are going to go. Um, Lars and Wade know the forest better than pretty much anyone else. They, they just literally have a small shack that they live in. They, uh, they're both rangers, um, and they've lived in the woods for most of their lives. They're in their early to mid-20s as well. Let's go ahead and pull up a picture of them. I said I'd have it from last week. There we go. We recognize them, do we not? <laughs> Two brothers. I thought that convenient. So Lars is on the left. Wade is on the right. Lars is the older brother. Um, Lars is the, uh, they're, they're, they're both rangers. Um, Wade, bigger of the two, he's very much animal-based. So he looked after animals and such um, down the road, assuming he survived. <laughs> There's a situation where he was, his goal was he was going to have like pets kind of thing, uh, animals that he would train. Uh, whereas Lars is more about the, the vegetation and protecting nature as a whole. Um, also fine with animals and such, but he doesn't, that's not his specialty. Um, both of them very good with the bow. Um, Lars is a bit better combat wise because um, Wade leans more on uh, as part of the animal assistance. Um, so the one I mentioned that I wasn't sure about is Seamus. I've never found someone perfect for Seamus. This is the closest we ever came up with because I wanted somebody who was very square jawed, very large, very muscular. Um, in my mind, he was a big Scottish dude. So I always pictured him a bit more with red hair and a bit of, and a beard on him. Um, but he's very, he's like well over six, six. He's a very tall, bulky guy. Um, in my mind, again, he was always a bit more on the Scottish side, but I've just never found an actor or musician or someone online that really fits that motif for the square jawline and muscle and size. This dude works just fine. Uh, but I, 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 I am, I am, uh, advising that I may change that picture in the future when I can finally find one that more fits what I, I feel for Seamus. Uh, but this one, very accurate uh, overall, will definitely give us something in the meantime. Um, so there we go. Everybody else's pictures that you've already seen, Quan and all those guys. So Quan, Lars, Wade, Seamus, Ulrich. Let's count that again. Ulrich. 
Then we got Quan. Then we got Seamus, Lars, and Wade. That is five dudes that are uh, all wanting to hang out with Mercy. Now, at this point, Lars and Wade and Seamus are, you know, kind of following her around and such. Uh, very enamored by her stuff, especially from the stories that they've heard from Quan and Ulrich and that they've seen themselves. Um, at this point, the only ones that are officially henchmen, if you will, of Mercy is Quan and Ulrich. Um, and then we have Misha and Lucas of Artemis. And we have Darsh and we have Dandelion. Dandy. So they decide it's time to head to the north. So they head north and uh, through the woods. And it's uh, slow going because the, the woods, at least at this point, are, um, again, it's mid to late summer. There's still a lot of vegetation. Um, there are some paths and such that um, Lars and Wade will lead them through because they do know this area very well, but they don't go as far north. This is a very huge forest. I, I can't stress that enough. It would take days, if not weeks, to cross it. So there's a lot of territory north, um, and not all of it was there originally. Um, so I have to stress that. Um, you know, the forest was big. It's been much bigger since the merge. So part of this forest, especially the northern area, is not from Lars and Wade's uh, growing up. Uh, Seamus, Lars, and Wade's, all of them are from the Moonbrook area, so they all knew each other for many, many years. Uh, MT says, sad, I have to go back to work. I will watch the replay. All right, MT, thanks for coming by, though. Appreciate you hanging out with us. Hope you like it. <laughs> Sorry about the having to go back to work part, though. I know I dread that myself. Um, but yeah, so they've all known each other for a very long time. So Lars, Wade, and Seamus uh, have been friends since childhood. Um which is kind of nice. People know each other. And they're heading north and they're making their way through, but eventually they start getting to a point where it's uh, more and more thick, so it's slowing them down. Um, Lars, Wade, and Dandy all working uh, ahead. Dandy, because she just slipped through much easier than everybody else, and Lars and Wade as well scouting. Uh, Quan would also normally do that, but right now he's staying closer to the group, uh, especially since they're traveling with Misha, uh, Lucas, uh, and all that. They won't Make sure we've got enough protection for the clerics. Right now, the concern is that Artemis may be a target of some kind. Uh, whatever, Obviously, she's important to whatever the success is there. Uh, and she was given these um, followers by the god Tavian as well. So that would imply that she needs the help. So um, they're trying to be extra careful protecting her moving forth. Uh, but they travel a, a good day to two days up into the woods. And it's middle of that second day that almost immediately they just hit a line where the vegetation stops. And the forest goes from a very thick, brushy, bountiful woods to like a dead forest. Trees with no leaves, no underbrush on the ground, no sounds of things like birds, and no signs of animal tracks. It's like literally just a wave of death has crossed through. The plants are uh, twisting and such. The trees are all dying. Um, and Lars and Wade had let them know that this they had seen this. This is what troubled them was why they went. Um, although they, at this point, are a little upset because they explained to the party that this isn't where this should be. They should have had to travel several more hours to reach this point. Um, it's like it's growing. And it's definitely unnatural. They can all tell that because the tree, even if there was something coming in that part of the forest was dying, it's only been a week or more since the, the Owens brothers were here. Uh, 
um, the whole thing wouldn't be completely decimated. You may see part of it, some of the trees losing their leaves and such, but to just see that level of, of decay um, spreading that quickly is just uh, uh, not natural in any way. And so they continue on now into this much easier to travel through, although much darker and gloomier section of the woods. Um, and they travel again for another day to two days in this type of area. And the further north they go, the worse it is. Um, streams appear dried up, or sometimes the water is discolored uh, to the point that they avoid drinking it, even boiling it. Uh, fortunately, they have their chest holding, so they always have a large amount of several barrels of water and plenty of food in there. The barrel of pickled fish, in case of emergencies, there's always a barrel of pickled fish in the, uh, in the chest of holding. Um, but they uh, live off their supplies. Instead of off the land, there's, there's no sign of any type of animal uh, veg uh, that they could live off of, and no plants, berries, or anything of that nature. And even if they did see them, they'd be a little concerned to eat them with the level of decay that they're seeing. So, it's at that time, about that time, so traveling north, that, and, and Lars and Wade at this point say, okay, this is the furthest, they, they're further now than they've traveled because um, they just didn't have any reason to go up here, you know. Um, there's still so much woods to the south that they kind of live in and, and enjoy and kind of look over. They, they never needed to go this far north. Um, so they're in an area that they've never been either. Seamus has never come even close to this. So it's all new territory for everybody at this point. And after a short while, um, the trees just stop. And there's a clearing. And now when I say a clearing... The clearing is massive. We're talking like a football stadium size clearing. And it is perfectly round. In that circle, there are no trees, nothing. No vegetation, just perfectly round. But what does sit at the center of it is a large um, building. I would say it looks Aztec in design. Uh, somewhat crumbly. It looks almost like ruins that are in really good shape. Um, and it, it looks slightly pyramid-like, but not completely. You know, it's not like a pyramid, but it's a, uh, a little bit along those lines. But in the front, there appear to be what look like large doors, like an entrance way. Um, and then just empty ground, and they're just a short distance ahead of them, they see what appears to be what was a broken road. So, um, like large flagstones that would be kind of in the ground or broken and somewhat chipped up and uh, the road is broken and obviously it's not been used by wagons or anything in a very long time. Um, if it wasn't for the death and such, um, this would very be overgrown at this point. There's, there's nothing that would appear that anyone's been here recently. Uh, but it is an old, crumbling, aztec looking building. Um... Our hero's looking at this, figure, well, we're here, so I guess we're going to check this, because this Artemis has felt this pull to the north, and it's getting stronger and stronger. Um, and when they arrive there, she's like, yeah, I believe this is, this is what we're here for. Whatever the problem is that's causing this death and such is probably starting or emanating from that temple. She can feel that. So can uh, Misha as well. Uh, both the clerics can kind of feel that. Oh, I forgot. I'm so sorry. I forgot. Tobias is with them as well, their, their friend the mage. Tobias is there. I forgot to mention Tobias earlier. Uh, let's see. Uh, what's good? Hey, what's up? Thanks for stopping by today, Duckang. Uh, just doing our D&D &D story podcast today. Um, so, uh, 
Tobias is there. I apologize. I forgot to mention Tobias. How can, who can forget Tobias? Our handy friend mage. Um, but they they proceed to continue in. Uh, so again, there's a good sized group of them at this point, right? You got Mercy's five people. Artemis has two people. Ulrich, or Mer, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Mercy got five too. So that's seven plus our four characters. You know, we got eleven people walking walking around at this point. That's a good size adventuring group. And from a DM standpoint, it definitely becomes a bit more challenging. The more players and NPCs that you add, the more combat and things gets complicated uh, to run. Um, so. A lot of times, as the DM, since I'm playing the NPCs, when we're rolling and doing their combats and such, um, I just say, this is what their effect was. They were able to do some damage on this guy. They did some this over here. They, they used this ability. Uh, but we don't really, a lot of times, roll them for specific damage and things. Unless it's like in a boss fight, something imperative. Um, but it does add a little bit more complication to running the adventure. And this is the one of those few situations where, in the game... Um, I will occasionally use minis. I don't. I don't use a lot of the miniatures or a board at all. Um, I use a dry erase marker on a dry erase board, and I'll draw out the stuff that they're seeing. But rarely do I have anything on a table like a lot of people do, where you can use the minis. Uh, but I have used them a few times, and we're not far from one of those times. So they start making their way across this large clearing, and they're about a third of the way towards the building. Right? And it's rough going, and they don't have horses. Everybody's on foot at this point. They left their horses back at the, at the temple. I should say that. Traveling through the woods, it was too dense to bring horses. So everybody's on foot, and they're making their way to there. And they're about a third of the way in before they start hearing sounds. And the sounds are low and guttural and moaning-like. And then they hear the crumbling. And looking around, they see the ground starting to burst up all over the place in this thing. I say like explosions, but bursting up as things start climbing out of the ground. And it is clear that these are corpses. Their type of undead just start busting through the ground and scrabbling and pulling themselves to the surface. And at first glance, these are undead that most of them, clothing is whittled gone. Some of, most of them are skeletal. Uh, what some do look newer. Um, Clothing's all different types, several different races, primarily human, even some things like orcs and such. There's undead of all sorts of races clawing themselves up and then moving towards them. Uh, this is, of course, bad uh, because there's 11 of them, but this is a huge football stadium. And imagine the ground busting up everywhere. Several hundred corpses start climbing out of the ground and coming towards them. Now, these are none of that crazy fast zombies. These are traditional, good old-fashioned Romero slow zombies. Uh, but there's still a lot of zombies for 11 people. And they start busting up in the ground, even between the stone and uh, that they're walking on as they're coming through there. So they're behind them and in front of them, and they start coming up, climbing out very quickly, and then all moving towards them. So they enter into combat uh, in this situation. So yeah, I had some minis in this spot because that's 11 people. But... This fighting begins, and they're trying to fight their way towards the temple. They had to make a decision. Do we try to get back to the woods and flee, or do we try to get to the temple? If they get to the temple, they could be trapped inside the temple, with surrounded by zombies, or worse, there could be more inside. But then turn around and fleeing, having a horde of zombies just chasing them all the way back, doesn't seem beneficial at all. So our heroes decided to carry on. Very brave, and perhaps foolish. But they began to fight their way through. And as they do, more and more 
start walking. So they're coming from behind the temple as well. And our heroes are not running. There's just too many of them. They're having to fight their way through. And luckily, they're zombies. They're not high-level undead. So most of our guys are just cleaving through them. It's like every zombie situation. It's not that they're dangerous individually. It's that there are just so many. And it's very quickly to get overpowered and daunted and blocked in. And Artemis is using her ability to turn undead as much as possible. And so is... Misha and Lucas is just glued to the two of them, making sure that nothing gets in close range. Uh, Mercy doing the same. Orders the guys to help clear the way forward. So Darsh and Seamus and Quan are trying to clear the way through while Lars and um, Wade are helping protect um, the clerics on their way through. And Dandy is just being Dandy. She's fighting undead and trying to clear the way and so on and so forth. And uh, Dandy's about to make decisions. She actually was about to start running forward to see if she could get there and see if the doors are, because they're big doors, make sure they're not locked. Because if so, she may need to pick those locks to get inside. And she's about to start busting through as literally just a wave of zombies hits the party and they really start being crushed together to a point that they don't think they're going to be able to get out of this. It is at that time that there is an explosion sound, a massive explosion, but an explosion sound from the northeast, so again, they're traveling north, right? Here's the, here's the circle. Here's your circle. You got your temple thing, ruins in the middle. They're working their way up. So from the northeast, they see a flash of light and explosion. And from best they can tell, they just see some zombie bodies basically go flying in the air. And they see someone running through the zombies at them. Now, this is clearly not a zombie. Uh, this person is moving very quickly, dressed head to toe in black, uh, but with hair very, very long and white. Now, for the record, no, it's not Draven, before anybody asks. The, the character, it's not that. It's much regular size looking, but Draven's a pretty tall guy. This is a smaller person, and this person is charging through, and they're carrying a spear. And this spear looks a little bit big for them. But at the end of it, the spear is like a, a bluish-purple uh, spearhead that almost looks crystal. But it is glowing, and as he, this person is swinging it, it's like trailing like a purplish like flame from it. And as the person gets closer, they can see the same purplish flames coming basically out of the eyes of this person running through. And the person is just, as they're coming through, the spear is just knocking and cutting through undead like it's nothing. The person is very agile and is moving very quick, dodging the undead, and every so often brings the spear down. And when they do, like literally holding it from the end and bring it down in front of them, it's like a, wa a wave of that purple goes forward and any undead in front of it just kind of gets tossed to the side um, and clears a path and is running towards them and is clearing a path to them. So the hero's like, okay, we don't know who this is, but clearly they're killing undead, so beneficial. Um, and they start trying to help get there as well. And the person starts waving them, because they're far away. person, you can't hear, but he's waving at the temple that they need to hurry. And he's trying to help clear a path, and eventually gets in front of them and is clearing a path, and they're all kind of running behind them. Now, through this, there were rounds of combat and attack, people casting spells and such. Um, no one was seriously injured. No one was infected. Uh, but uh, uh, there were some injuries and such, but the clerics were able to take care of those pretty quickly. Um, with this person and Darsh running up front, um, because Darsh is clearly much larger than this person. This person's human or a little bit smaller than human. Um, so again, the spear looks a little bit tall for him. 
coming through and are just blasting the dead. The two of them setting the path and Darce just cleaving with his swords. Uh, they manage to get to the doors. The doors are not locked, but they are very heavy and it doesn't look like they've been opened in a while. Um, so it takes the strength of Darsh and several of the others, uh, Seamus specifically, Seamus being the second strongest person there. Darsh and Seamus are able to finally force the doors open, one of them. Um, and at that, while that's going on, the other characters, including this mystery person, is using his spear to, to keep the undead from coming up the few stairs to get to the door. With the door open, everybody starts climbing in. The last one in is the mysterious figure with the spear. And then Seamus and Darsh again pull the door closed tightly. Uh, there's not really a way to lock it that they can see, um, but it was a pull door. So the zombies up against it are pushing against it. Unless the zombies learn how to pull and work together, they're not going to be able to open that door. And so, you know, everybody's checking themselves real quick. It was okay, and then and eyeing the stranger person, person with this purple smoky stuff coming out of their eyes. So their eyes are glowing almost like a white purple with just like the hint of a purple smoke coming out. And the ha their, their hair is white and almost has that same glow to it as well as the end of the spear. And the person starts immediately checking. He's like, was anyone bitten? Was anyone hurt? Is anyone infected? That kind of thing. And he's and the person's, and he's, he's sitting there with the spear in his one hand, again, a little bit tall for him. And he's sitting there and he's not touching anyone, but he's kind of putting his hand in front of him and saying, you're okay, you're okay, you're all right. And then stops and quickly moves towards Artemis. Which Lucas hasn't doing, but he's prepared because he's like, "Okay, you're moving a little quick." And he the per mystery person steps forward and says, "Where were you bitten?" And Artemis goes, "I wasn't bitten." He goes, "Where is the infection? You've been infected. I can see it. Where were you bitten?" And Artemis is confused, and she goes, "I, I wasn't bitten. I'm uninjured. There, there, there is, there's no injuries. None of none of them were able to get because they didn't." And the person stops for a minute, kind of tilts their head, and looks at the spear, and looks back, and starts staring directly at Artemis's chest. Not at her boobs, but staring exactly where that tattoo is, that little symbol mark that was given to her by Draven when the necklace shattered. It's like he can see it through her clothes. Artemis instinctively kind of pulls her robes closed a little bit. Lucas, thinking he's looking at her goodies, uh, is about to say something. And the person steps back and says, I'm sorry, I, I misunderstood. I apologize. But doesn't sound real happy about it the way he says it. And they're like, who are you? And he stops and he turns, and the, the, the spear starts to fade, and it's no longer glowing, and the hair starts turning from white back to a black darker color, and he pulls off, because he's wearing like a mask. I, I mentioned that. He's wearing a mask all to his face except for his eyes. The eyes are the only part you see. Now like a ninja mask? Actually kind of like a, a coronavirus mask, really, when you think about it. It looks a little bit more like the Winter Soldier mask, but without the eyes. Just like that, kind of like a, a hard leather piece. And he's his black outfit goes all the way up to the top of his neck. It gives him some movement, but the mask, when it's on, would leave no opening area. There's very little, there's no skin showing on him other than his face and head at this point. He's got gloves on and everything. And he reaches up and he pulls the mask off, and as it fades out, um, they see that it's Michael. Dandy's Michael, who disappeared at this point almost a year and a half, two years ago, after their, uh, his um, interaction with the Death Stone. So, I've shown you what 
Michael looks like in the past. Uh, it's the same actor that plays Beast in the uh, X-Men Origins movies, the, the young guy. Um, and But when he is in his new glow mode, he looks a lot like that. Uh, Xbox Gaming. Oh, hey, thanks for stopping by. I have to sleep soon since I have school tomorrow. Well, I'm sorry you have school tomorrow, but I hope you have a good day. <laughs> I appreciate that you came by and stopped by today. <laughs> so that is what Michael looks like when he's in gl the glow mode, which I'm going to talk about here in just a minute. The hair goes like the whitish. It's not completely white. You can still see the hints of the black in it, his normal color. His eyes change that whitish, and then they get like the little bit of purple smoke coming out of them. Um, but as the as the spear stops glowing, so does he, and he goes back to looking like his normal self again. So that's that. They can hear the zombies banging on the door, um, but looking at it, Darsh uh, and, uh, agree, thinks that it's safe, that the zombies aren't going to be able to get through. The It took a lot of strength for Darsh and Seamus to open them, and again, like I said, they're pushing on a pull door. Uh, they don't have any concerns that the zombies are going to be able to break in, but... They don't know if there's other ways into this building, and so that's their concern at this point. Um, it's at this point that, you know, Dandy, of course, immediately runs up and starts hugging on Michael uh, because, you know, she's missed him. Yeah, it's a, her lo love interest, if you will. Um, and he embraces her just as excited to see her. Like, it's it's definitely, there's no hesitation Um and it goes on a couple minutes, everybody else is a little uncomfortable, like, you know, want to give them a minute, because they're, they're in, at this point, a large square chamber, 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 and there's doors going out the side, and another door going forward, they have a, but, and there's doors set at each side, so it's a bit of a hallway, and then a set of doors, left, right, and center. The center one, you have to go down a little bit of a stairs to get at. Um, so, Dandy and Michael are excited to see each other, as is the rest of the party, because Michael's a friend, and he just was pretty whoop ass there. Um, and how did this happen? How did you find us? What exactly is going on? Is the questions that they start asking Michael. Um, and so, oh, uh, Xbox, I would be an interesting idea to have a stream where you just talk with everyone watching. I'm definitely going to do something like that. <laughs> Jim says, I'm two minutes behind and just found out this is Michael. That's awesome. Yes, uh, Michael has a tale to tell, which he's going to, he shares with them as they check their wounds and everybody's doing okay, Michael tells uh, a brief overlay of what's happened that's brought him to this point. Uh, but first he needs to introduce them to Menandra. And Menandra is the spear that he carries. He explains that Menandra is a intelligent weapon, which means it has an actual personality. Menandra is alive. But Menandra speaks with him, and he can speak to Menandra. Uh, Menandra, nobody else hears Menandra. It's, it's just Michael. Um, but that they have, uh, <laughs> they have an agreement. So we're going to talk about that. So after Michael, for those of you who may not have been here in the past, Michael had merged with a death gem through grief of thinking Dandy was dead, trying to bring her back. And instead, uh, the gem kind of took him over and... He ended up creating this undead army and wiping out all these people with the goal of finding Dandy and eventually bringing her back and, you know, everybody being alive in an undead form. They defeated him and managed to uh, break him away from the gem's influence, but in his mind, every undead that killed a person, he was in their eyes. He saw that. In his mind, he just saw hundreds, if not thousands, of murders 
and killings and felt um, to blame. Uh, so he said, I can't be here with you guys right now. I, I don't know what I, you know, he was a knight as well. He, a knight of the light. He had oaths and all of that was kind of shattered by the gem. And they're like, you know, you were under its control. And he's like, yeah, but I let myself fall under that control. And that's, that's unacceptable. So he left them and they haven't heard from him since. The only thing they heard is when they talked to uh, his uncle or one of the, one of the knights um, of the Knights of the Light, which is order that Michael had been through there. Um, but the uncle had said the same thing. You're not to blame for this. Magic overtook you. Because again, Knights of the Light, not big on magic specifically. They're not big fans of that. Um, tainted magic. And, uh, but he's like, no, I can't stay here. My oaths have been destroyed. I have to find a way to redeem myself. And Michael left. And so Michael just basically left his weapons and armor and didn't know where else to go and just started to wander. And he ate off the land. He lived, basically grown. He's got all shabby and funky and just kept going north. No, no specific reason why, just to get away. Because in his mind, he was going to die. He wasn't, he couldn't kill himself. His oath to the light, that still was there. He could never commit suicide. Um, so he ate and stuff to live. And in the few situations he ran across any type of threat, which was normally like a live animal or a brigand or something, he would fight to survive. But he was putting himself in more and more dangerous situations. He didn't go to cities, to towns. He lived out in the middle of nowhere. He didn't think he was worthy enough to live. And so as he traveled to the north, he traveled for months this way. Uh, his clothes started to just become in disrepair. He wasn't taking care of himself. He was very thin and so on and so forth. And eventually, as happens in Merge World, one day he, he just, the ground and everything stopped and suddenly before him was just blinding snow. Just a winter Arctic land ahead of them. Um, and in his mind, he was like, this is where I need to go. So in the back of his mind, he's like, I'm not going to make it through this. I brought the cold death to many others. I will now face that cold myself and, you know, my death and punishment and so on. And my suffering will hopefully be a shadow of making up for what I've caused. And he could he just, in his shattered, barely shoes tearing up, just walked into this freezing cold. Because Merge World is like that. You mean a nice sunny day, take one step, be in a blizzard. Take one step back out, you're in the sun. One step in, your blizzard. There's that hard line between where different parts of the world are that do not mishmash. And so he was... He just started traveling through the snow, freezing, cold, his fingers getting... And he just kept on going. And he found that he, he couldn't see far because it was always stormy. And he didn't travel very long before he felt himself going up. And he realized he was at the base of what was some type of hill or mountain. Again, very little. So he just started climbing. He's like, maybe this is it. Maybe an avalanche will take me. Maybe I'll fall and die. But I'm just going to keep going. That was his thing. And he kept going. And as he was going, there was times when most people would give up. And he just, he kept feeling that motivation to keep going. And after a while, he realized that motivation wasn't just an inner voice. It was a voice. He was hearing a voice that was very feminine, that was telling him to go forward, pushing him on. And it wasn't a voice he'd ever heard. At first, he had thought maybe it was Dandy and he was imagining it, you know, maybe in, in his cold and delusion state. He hadn't eaten anything in a day or so at this point. There's nothing to eat in the snow area. But it was a different voice and it was, it was pulling him forward and keeping him from giving up. And he kept climbing higher and higher. Until eventually, you know, almost falling several times, he came across a cave. A breaking just spot in the mountain. And he climbed inside a brief spot from the wind. And with his cold hands, he, he could see a glowing light coming from deep in the cave. And as he went back in there, he found Menandra um, 
sticking in, in the ground. Spirit first is sitting straight up. And Menandra spoke to him. And Menandra said that her mission, she was created specifically and has been held in the hands of many. Her job, she was created to fight undead. That's, that's what she is. She is discouraged and to spend her existence trying to wipe away all that was uh, death across the world in which she was created, which is this frozen thing. And she's been in the hands of many in that, in, in, in that situation, but eventually was abandoned here. And she sensed in Michael the same desires, the want and the regret for what he had done. And she offered him, she goes, she goes, death is not, will not free you from the guilt that you, you feel, but retribution can. Join with me, wield me against undead on this world, and we will save lives instead of take them kind of thing. Um, that's what he wanted the whole time, some way to make up for what he did. And while he never feels he will ever truly make up for everything, um, the more undead he kills and destroys, uh, the better off he feels. So he joined with Menandra, and Menandra and him will literally link in battle against undead, primarily, but even in, against others. Uh, Menandra has multiple special abilities. You saw a bit of them. Not only that, she can sense undead, um, things of that nature in a certain range. Uh, telepathy with him. Uh, she's a definitely, she's an artifact weapon, so she's pretty boss. Uh, she's got some, some serious power to her. Um, specifically against undead. Against regular stuff, she's just a really good spear. Um, but it also increases his natural abilities. Agility, speed, and strength. Not to an inhuman form, but to peak what he should be able to do. Um, and Menandra led him out of there to a place where you know, they managed to eat and such, and came back out of the snow with a new, renewed life. And uh, basically immediately started on that calling. Found what he could, found others that way, started to arm himself, started hunting undead, um, talking, coming across villages, have they seen any undead, have anybody great going to graveyards, finding those areas where undead would be, and he and Menandra started basically becoming a one-man army against undead everywhere. It was not too long ago that Menandra sensed a great, on the edge of her range, uh, source of death, that definitely, she's like, this is a big one. They started coming this way. And it was, again, coming through the dead forest at the same time when they see, uh, and he immediately recognizes Darsh and the friends, and he's like, I've got to get him inside because he could sense there was there's death inside, but there's way more death outside. And that's the other thing he says. Inside this temple, there is death below. I can sense, or not, he, together, when he's linked with Menander, can sense. When they're not linked, Menander still talks to him and, and gives the abilities, but Menander only speaks to him. And yes, he's not insane. It really is an intelligent weapon. I, I did clarify that because they wanted to know that too. But Michael is back. At least for a while, right? So, now he's in here with them. Perfect timing to have somebody who fights undead when you're surrounded by undead. Convenient! <laughs> Which, yes, I mean, you know, as a, as a story writer, uh, there's a lot of the... Uh, uh, convenience in stories, things working like that. But uh, it is what it is. So, I'm going to give you guys a little look at the map of the temple here in a few minutes. Uh, at least the layer on there. I apologize. The stairs go down. There is a door, set of doors in front of them. Two more. Uh, one on the left, one on the right. And then there's actually, the temple comes back a little bit and there's doors leading almost outwards but still inside. Um, and...
they can't get, let me give this specific here, they, they, they don't know which direction to go. So in this situation, as a classic dungeon crawl, they have to investigate the rooms. There may be some type, they, they got to find a way to continue on. Maybe there's a puzzle, maybe there's something. There was, I'm going to go into that. Um, I'm not going to go into the super specifics of it, but I'll, I'll give the overall, overall uh, thoughts here. Um, in each of the rooms, as they go into them, they come across um, people in robes. Dark clerics, and they, after the first fight, checking their symbols and such, it is clearly that they are clerics of the dead, uh, which is Halana, goddess of death, um, also known as she, or just death specifically. Commonly takes the form of a reaper or succubus, um, but she is the goddess of death. And the goddess of death classified as evil, although I, I was a little torn with that. I almost made it Neutral, because death is technically natural, um, even when you're trying to spread death. That's I've always been torn on that, but because I made light a life and healing good, which to me really would be, um, especially on natural healing, I decided to make diametrically opposed death as evil. But a lot of times, just as me as a DM, and I struggle with that in stories, death doesn't always have to be evil. It's doing what it feels is right. Spreading death is what they do. That's the essence of of that of that god's existence. Um, so not necessarily evil, um, but for all intents and purposes, pretty evil today. Um, so as they go into they bust into the first room, and again, historically they always go left. So they went in the very leftmost door, and as they bust into that door, um, they find several clerics of Halana. Uh, the clerics immediately attack them. Um, the floor is just full of um, like in the corners are like stacked corpses and such, just piled in there and things. Parts of corpses, I should say. Um, and they have to fight them as well as there's an undead beast in there. They have to fight that. Um, this is a, in this in this place that they're in right now. Michael is of course a huge asset, but so is Artemis, of course, uh, with her ability to turn undead. Misha also has turn undead, but she's a very low-level cleric, uh, so she helps a lot with like the you know, zombies or skeletons. But anything that's more powerful, Artemis clearly has more mojo and can maybe can't destroy them, but can definitely affect them negatively to allow everyone else to do damage. Um, so that was room. They go into room three first, and they go into see. I'm just gonna give you a rough down. Uh, room four uh, had a few in it, uh, but again, it was just mostly blood splatters in pools all over the ground. Uh, room five. Let me see. There's some Bane Dead, which is a type of advanced zombies. They had to fight those. Um, uh, the biggest room that they, they had a problem with, because they, they, they found that the doors had to unlock in a specific sequence, and the sequence was like a, a pentagram. So the left door, upper right door, and so the, the door, which is the point at the top, uh, was, was would be the last one based on the door they opened. Um, that's why they went in the left door also, because it's the only one. Uh, let's see here. Ba -ba 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 -ba. Sorry, I'm back. I had an issue with background. No problem, Fuji. Uh, when will the next No Man's Sky stream be? Uh, I'm not sure. Probably here in the next few days. I'll probably jump on and do it again. Um, it's I'm having surgery again tomorrow morning, so I'm not 
saying anything concrete for the next few days because I just don't know how I'm going to be feeling after the surgery. Uh, but as soon as I'm feeling well enough to stream, I'll probably jump on and do another No Man's Sky because that's been a lot of fun. But I did do one this morning that was also pretty awesome. Uh, loving that game. Played a little bit more this afternoon. Uh, but we will. Uh, I will definitely be doing that again probably later this week. I just don't want to say a specific day and then not feel up to doing it. Uh, so I'll let you guys know as soon as the surgery's over and I see how I'm feeling. Uh, but I'm glad you're enjoying it. <laughs> Very much so. Um, so they were fighting... All of this stuff. There was some blazing bones, which is like a flaming skeleton. They had to fight some of them. Uh, what else was in here that they fought? Uh, the one room that was um, it was a little bit rough was uh, the second, the last room. In that room, there were multi was contained multiple torture devices. Um, there were corpses on all in, on the corners, but there were several living victims that shouldn't be living. Um, they've been just literally tortured and cut to the point that their bodies shouldn't be alive, but the dead were keeping them alive uh, for science, if you will. Um, and there was no saving them after they... Uh, there, one of them was, uh, in this room, there were several clerics of Halana and then an Inquisitor, which is a um, high type of cleric that literally torches for knowledge and for science. Uh, after defeating them, they had to, unfortunately, put the people down. Uh, again, not that they wanted to, but it was there. Were, even Artemis Magic couldn't save those those poor people. Um, dead or alive, that's correct. All right, so I'm going to pull up real quick here. It's going to take me just a second, but I'm going to show you guys the map that I used for this. Um, it's it'll be sideways, so hopefully it'll, it'll be okay here. But uh, I'm hoping you guys will. Get an because I, I keep saying I'm going to show you guys some of the maps and I always forget to take pictures of them, but I actually made a point of doing it today. So this is let's get rid of that. Oh, that's way way too big. So this was uh, again it's sideways and I apologize. I'm not sure if it'll let me spin it. I don't know. Won't. Um, but that they came in from the uh, left hand side. So the doors on the very left middle. That's the doors that they came in and. Each of these rooms, like I said, they, they had to jump into stuff. Um, uh, let me see. Uh, good idea to stay up late when I have to go to school at 6.30. I understand that. <laughs> but yeah, so that's that's was this this floor. There are stairs leading down. Um, now, that's how I... I've, different ways as I've grown as a DM of drawing specific things. The things that look like little lines are not ladders. Those are stairs. Um so the, in that main room, there's stairs kind of wrapping, going down. All these stairs go down. Even in the uh, the other rooms, you'd go into that room, there'd be like a, a higher level, and you'd go down the stairs to get to the rest of that room. Uh, so seven, three, those were on the same level they walked in on, but four, five, and six, they would have had to go down some stairs in that room to get to the primary area of that room. Room five, because I don't number them in order. I don't know what order they're going to go in sometimes. Number room five was the big room. That was the last one to open. And um, in each of these rooms, let's see here. Grab it here. Okay, so in each of these rooms that they were going into, in the middle of those pentagrams was an orb that the clerics were kind of casting spells. It's kind of floating in the air. Um, and they were gathering those orbs. And as they were taking them back to room two, that big pentagram in the middle there, there was a, on each of the points of the star was a place you could put one of those orbs. And so they, 
as they were gathering them, they're bringing them back and putting them on those orbs because they assumed there, there was nowhere else to go. They need to do that. That was the puzzle of, of the thing. Uh, so each room had one. The fifth one was the last one to open, and the fifth one was the roughest room because if you've ever played D&D, you might know what a death knight is. A death knight is an incredibly powerful undead. Um, it is one of probably the most powerful undead in Dungeons & Dragons, aside from Draco Lich, or a Lich itself, um, probably a couple other big ones, Vampire. Um, but a Death Knight is pretty harsh. Um, and it was by far, at this point, probably the most powerful monster or uh, fight I've ever put them in. Um, but with all the extra people there, the extra bonus of Michael with Menandra, I felt that they could handle it. I was concerned, but, I mean, there's got to be some challenge, right, when you put people into this. Um, I don't always assume they're going to live. I never make it so that I know they're going to die, unless there's a reason they're going to be brought back to death. Uh, but I, I don't ever set them up to fail. We'll put a star on that, that I can remember. Um, but I, I also want to make sure there's a little bit of danger in there as well. I never put it up any big fight, there's always the chance for failure. Um, so they went into that fight, and um, it was a tough one. Um, several of the minions almost died. Ulrich, uh, one of the Owens brothers did, um, took a lot of damage, as well as uh, Darsh, who stayed up front, and Mercy, they both took bunches of hits. Uh, but the person who took the most damage and almost died was Lucas. Uh, because every time the Death Knight would always try to target Artemis, or target Artemis, and no matter who was being tossed aside in magic, Lucas would never allow him through. So a lot of times, he would like do damage on Lucas, and then everybody else would charge in, and he'd be knocking everybody back, and then going Artemis, and Lucas is like, it's, you're just not getting through here, buddy. And Lucas took a lot of damage, and he came close to dying. Uh, it's probably one of the closest any of the NPCs or PCs had come in a very, very long time to actually dying. He was like at neg nine hit points. Neg ten is death. He was, and it, I rolled it. It was neg nine, and at that point, um, Artemis couldn't. They, they just, somebody just pulled him out of the way. I think it was Misha pulled him out of the way as best she could, and was using her light heels to keep him alive while everybody else means me. Michael being the the biggest perk in that fight, Menandra knew there was a great evil on the other side of that door, so they walked in there prepared. She she couldn't tell because she can normally tell what type of undead. And I don't mean specifically, like, that's a Death Knight, but she can say, okay, that's a level 5, that's a level 3. She has her classifications. These are low-level undead. She knows it's, and when the bigger, the more powerful they are, the harder for her to know exactly what type it is, because they're powerful as well. Zombies, she can say, there are 20 zombies on the other side of that door. A Death Knight, she goes, okay, there's something big over there. Death Knight, Lich, I don't know, but there's something big on the other side of that door. So the more powerful it is, the, the less information she has. Oh, the map is still up. Thank you very much. Let me drop that. <laughs> Appreciate that, Jim. Boop. Okay, so that's map number one. Um, now, uh, they managed to defeat the Death Knight, fortunately, which was very cool. Um, and then they used a lot of healing spells bringing back up the minions. The minions had taken a lot of damage there. Um, Lars and Owens, like I said, are both rangers, and a lot of times they're using range attacks. They're very good with bows, but they can get melee if they need to. Uh, a lot of the things they're, they fought in here, the skeletons and even the zombies... Arrows just don't do a lot of damage in here, so they had to jump into melee, where primarily they were designed to be more ranged uh, combat for the party, because the party doesn't have a lot of ranged combat, other than Tobias when he's hanging out. Um, 
So, uh, they went ahead and they managed to get that, get the last orb. Uh, let's see. And they take it back to room number two. Here we go. All right. Uh, just a little tip no guys. When you have a lot of money, just buy most resources. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, placing the final orb in its place, on its resting place, all five begin to glow. After a few moments, each is crackling with a pink electricity. I like pink electricity. Suddenly, the electricity shoots from each orb, connecting in the center of the pentagram. A black void grows to form a doorway or portal. So, oh, hello, Midnight. Let me have my book, buddy. You can sit down. Um, so, basically, it created a portal, because there's no stairs going down to another. There is another level, but the only way to get to it is through a portal. Yes, I know. It's very scary. Death Knights. Um, so, um, they take that portal, and... Without any, they have nowhere else to go. Then Artemis is like, yeah, that's the next step. We've got to go through. And so they go through that portal in their party order, which I don't remember the specifics, um, but it's almost always dandy up front when it's a scouting. But if it's not a scouting, which this is not, it's usually Darsh up front. Okay, Midnight, buddy. You got to give me some room, bud. Um, and so they walk through. I have a bad habit of naming my chapters or naming sections of adventures just because... I find it interesting for myself. Nobody else ever sees them but me, but I'm going to share a couple of them. Uh, what we, right now we're in a temple of Helana, but the next section is called Death Becomes You. I, I don't know why I chose that name. I just did. <laughs> um, but as soon as they go through, this is what I read to them. Immediately you smell the scent of old death. What you see in this massive chamber amazes and appalls you. And for many of you, tears spring to your eyes at the wretchedness before them. So, and this is where we're going to get map number two. Let me grab that. So you guys have an idea. Before I start describing it, you'll know what I'm talking about. One second. Browse that. Map number two. And there it is. Okay, let me shrink that down a little bit. Again, these are pictures I took with my phone, so I apologize. They're sideways. So this is a massive chamber. Uh, they are basically coming through the portal up here. Or this would, because again, it's sideways. So in the bottom right-hand corner, you'll see like a, looks like a, uh, two circles of the line, that's the portal, and then there's some stairs leading down into this room. That giant rectangle, we're going to talk about that in a minute, because that's a giant rectangle. This is a huge room. Um, in the center of that pentagram thing, the first thing I need to talk about, there is a, a really, really large ball of magical energy, and inside of it appears to be some type of living creature made out of light um, or energy itself. Um, it's silhouette. It doesn't have like direct features, but if you were to pick a silhouette, it would be like a, a large like fairy or pixie. It has wings that itself shimmer. They're not clearly defined, and it floats within like it's trying to get out of the ball. Um, it definitely looks like it's trapped inside, but that figure itself probably eight to nine feet tall. So the sphere is larger than that. Just to give you an idea of how big that ball is, the thing is trapped. There are more clerics and such, and there are pedestals. Um, at the po each point of the star, the magic is going up, creating this ball. So whatever those are, are locking that in. Uh, there are clerics all over the room, as well as different undead. If we look up at the very top, you'll see a bunch of tables. There's different bodies and such on there that are being marked for uh, reanimation. Um, that big old rectangle, that's a body. And when I say a body, that is a frost giant body uh, that is just laying there. Frost giants, really big. Very tall. I think they average 23 or 24 feet for a frost giant, if I remember correctly. 
see if I have the height. No, just that it was very big. Okay. Um, and while there are clerics, there's very quickly, every attention comes to them. The portal opens. Everybody knows that. It's not supposed to. They look over, and the party comes out. People start jumping into action, but one person specifically, they can very much clear. There's one dude who's a little bigger than everyone else, even height-wise, but with his hood pulled back, his skin is so shrunken on his face, it's almost skeletal. So imagine the hood pulled back on Skeletor. Um, so his, skin, his hands and his face are very shrunken, but he still seems to have a, a decent... Now, muscular like Skeletor, but he's got some mass on the body. Um, but his hands and arms and face seem very, very thin compared to the rest of his body. Um, and person starts shouting in a language they don't understand... And people start going, and clerics start moving their hands, and bodies start raising, and then immediately we jump into what would be our boss fight, uh, if I remember correctly. Let me just check here. Ba, 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 ba. So they immediately, the Artemis, the, Michael doesn't hesitate. He's like, okay, undead, here we go. And he jumps down off that little dais, runs down the stairs, and charges in before anybody else even has a chance to make a plan or decide what they're going to do. Without his Dandy's like, okay, me too then, and she starts following after him, and Darsh and Mercy are like, well, all right, you guys protect the clerics. So Artemis and Misha and Tobias were staying up near the stairs, near the portal in case they needed to flee. Lucas, who's 50% healed at this point, was staying there. Um... The Wade brothers were staying there. This is a point where they could use their archery. They were targeting the clerics specifically. Uh, the, un the undead weren't really affected by their arrows. Um, but the... Oh, let me close the map down again. You guys have seen that. I can pull it up if I need to. Uh, they, uh, they were taking care of uh, fighting at the living and such. Um, and everybody else, attacky boom boom. Ulrich and Quan both following Mercy into battle. Seamus, and the, Seamus guarding the stairs, not letting anything get up. Uh, him and Lucas are guarding the stairs so nothing can get up to the clerics and the uh, wizard. And as the battle's uh, writing in, of course, the, the, the bad guy, um, who for the record, his name is Mordecai. I gave him a name. They never learn his name. It's, that's not important. But I like to give my villains names. There was a main villain back in Moonbrook, and I never told you his name because they never found it out. But I had one. Um, <laughs> so uh, yells out in a classic villain way, Fools, you dare to desecrate the goddess' sacred rituals. You shall die painfully for your arrogance, and I shall take pleasure in raising your filthy corpses for the glory of my god. And then that's when the full battle... Because they fought a few minutes, and that's, that's when the full battle kicked in. And uh, they were wiping... There was a lot of battle with lower-level undead, and they were fighting them. Um, and they were winning very quickly on. Because I didn't... Again, it was a numbers thing more than a lot of powerful undead. There were a few powerful... Regular, not higher-level zombies and skeletons in there. There's a couple skeletal knights, which are different, uh, were fighting and such. But they did really well against them. It wasn't until that... Mordecai raises the frost giant um, that things turned a little bit and they had problems because Mordecai does at one point because again a lot of times I, I create my boss fights uh, much like you sign it in a video game there's waves you defeat this now the second wave happens and the third wave um, that he raised the frost giant and now the frost giant's coming in and he Mordecai himself enters into battle um, using a huge uh, uh, scythe big one um, and he, he jumps into battle as well um, and there's that. Uh, so the fight fight goes on. Uh, the Frost Giant was a problem. Michael, um, Darsh, 
and uh, Dandy did a lot of that. Uh, funny enough, um, they uh, <laughs> they had the idea to pull a Star Wars move, um, and Dandy basically at one point just grabbed, got a bunch of she, a rope from the chest of holding, went back to Artemis, got a bunch of rope, and then she just started running around the thing's legs as it was trying to chase, shamble around and chase everyone else, um, and tied up its leg, got its legs to the point that it finally tripped and fell. And that's when they were able to do most of their damage to it. But it, it, it did some smacking around, especially of Darsh, because Darsh and Mercy always take the brunt of most fights. Uh, Ulrich and Quan as well, um, right in there with them. There was their front line with Michael. But Michael did, again, a huge chunk of the damage in this situation. Uh, but they were successful, um, and it comes down to a, a basically Mordecai and a couple last remaining clerics, and they try to flee, Um but Michael doesn't let them. Um, uh, and that was kind of a bit of a surprise, because Michael's always been the kind of honorable fighter and so on and so forth. Uh, but as Mordecai is turning and running, Michael just took off uh, and ran him through from behind, right through the chest, and just Menander stabbing through, because uh, they kill undead. This is a guy that makes undead. This is the worst of the worst to Menandra. Um, and Michael just basically right through his right th from the back. He's, he's, as he's trying to get through the portal, the other clerics have opened. It just rips through Mordecai's chest, and you see the glowing purple. Michael's hair is all white. The reason he has the, the mask and such is, again, fighting undead protecting. Everything he has is like a, a black leather uh, kind of a thing that would protect against claws and bites. There's vampires out there, so he has a high you know, neck thing. Um, the mask he wears as well from any type of nauseous gases and things that some undead could give out. That's why Michael's suit is designed the way it is. He designed it, Menandra basically designed it and then had him have it made over time and, and that's kind of how uh, he stays protected in those situations. Uh, but, and he's carrying a few things like holy water. He's got a few stuffs on him that are uh, undead fighting things and we'll get more into that later. Uh, but they, he finally run, he runs through Mordecai um, and the last couple clerics shoot through the portal and leave and it closes behind them so they don't get all the low level clerics they do take up Mordecai and all the undead that were in here um, once they were done with that um, they had to figure out what's going on in this big ball floating in the middle of the center and in the center the creature that's again made out of like magical light energy thing uh, speaks to them in a very high feminine voice. It tells that her name is Shinestra and that she has been imprisoned, uh, that she is a creature from the pl a plane of life. So a different elemental plane, but a plane of life itself. And Mordecai had imprisoned her and had been draining her life magic to perverse it and use it to bring back things from the dead. And the more he did that, the more the death just spawned and moved out. The first thing it did is it started poisoning all the land in the area, why the crops and the animals were getting sick, and even the people. And then the second wave of that is the actual line of death as it grew from the, as they pulled all the magic out of the land and such. Uh, Shinestra says that if they will break the black crystals on each of the points of the uh, pencil, it will free her. Oh no, sorry. There's a black crystal ball that must be destroyed in order to free her. The black crystal ball is in a, a room off to the side. So again, on the map here, uh, that was the room you see in the bottom left-hand corner. Uh, that was the personal space of Mordecai. They got a little bit of treasure loot in there, as any adventure would. 
Um, but inside that, locked inside of a box that was trapped, that Dandy untrapped successfully, uh, they find the crystal ball, and they they agree, you know, they're prepared for battle, because Shinestra could be in league with them. They don't know for sure, but they tell you they break it, and it is in fact that um, Shinestra is a creature of light, and she was trapped, and so on and so forth. So, uh, she is she is a creature of goodness. Uh, let's see here. Uh, right. So, for freeing Shinestra, Shinestra thanks them, of course. Uh, she said that uh, she's, you know, for several years now, she's been trapped in that thing. And um, it breaks her heart because she's from a plane of life and bountiful energy of that nature to know that her magic has been used for death and such. Much like Michael, she senses the Michael Menander thing and has a little bit of connection there. Um, feel bad because her magic and her life has been drained to cause a lot of this abomination. Um, this Temple of Halana, completely separate from the slavers and brigands that were attacking Moonbrook and such. Just happened. This area just got screwed in two different ways at the same time. Um, maybe on purpose. But overall, those two things were not connected. Um, so they do break it. She is freed. And she says that she does not have wealth. She does not have power that she can give them. But she does want to reward them from saving her and uh, ending this torturous existence that she had. And so as that, she's going to give them the one thing that she knows they've sought the most. And that is the location of the source, because it is something that she knows. She tells them that the source is south of Paxwall, far into the great ocean of the south, further than anyone in Paxwall has ever traveled. Uh, that they would just need to go basically straight south from Paxwall. It would take weeks, if not months, of journey. Um, but if they can survive the trip there, they will find the source. Um, let's see. So that's the big thing. And she said, and at this source, they will find the central gate. Uh, she then turns to Artemis and says, Lady Artemis, you have a great power within you granted by your guard, a great spell of cleansing. When you are ready to leave here, cast your spell here in the center of this desecration. I thank you for my freedom and I wish you well on your journey. But know this, you are not the only one seeking the source and he who hunts you now knows where you are. So they say that's that's just kind of how that works. Now that you know where the source is, he who seeks you knows where it is as well and knows where you are. So it's again kind of a race. Um, she basically just flies up into the roof and fades right through, and she's gone at that point. She actually turns, I'm sorry, she turns into a wisp. She turns into a very small, like, fairy, and then wisps up through the, up through the ceiling. Um, they got a little bit of loot and treasure here. Nothing of importance that we need to talk to. Um, Artemis is like, okay, I'm ready. And she feels that that spell, that spell that the god had put in, a great spell of cleansing is ready to be released. She kind of tells everybody to stand back. And she doesn't, she just basically self-opens herself up to it. And she feels herself casting the spell, even though she doesn't know the words that she's saying. And everyone just sees this huge blast of magical energy and flashing light go out for her and just flash and they look and then everything looks normal again. And then everything starts to shake. And the entire chamber and the walls start to crack and crumble and everything starts to fall apart. Um, and so at that point, they're like, whoop, we got to go. And they just start running back to their original portal up on the, the stairs is still open. And they try to flee to get back out again. 
uh, because the pieces of the roof are now caving in, the walls and dirt are just falling into the room. The whole place is shaking like an earthquake. And so they tear off. They go through the portal, they race upstairs, and they get to the main doors. They don't have any choice. They've got to go outside. Michael says, yes, he can sense undead out there, but something's wrong. They need to, they need to push through. It's the, whole, the place is falling in around them. And Darsh and Seamus just heave themselves against the door. Pushing is much easier than pulling. So the door opens quickly. Um, quicker. This is what I read to the characters. As you race out of the temple doors, you can see that all the undead are disintegrating, turning uh, to dust. The ruins are also falling apart, crumbling and sinking into the earth. You all run away from the temple as fast as possible, dodging falling stones and running past falling corpses. Uh, finally, after a few moments, you reach the tree line and are able to stop. The shaking is less. Looking back, you see the temple caving in upon itself. As the building finally falls, a large cloud of dust just boof up into the air, like a meteor hitting the ground, obscuring your vision. So imagine that, just a huge dust field comes up and nobody can see anything. It takes several moments for the dust to begin to settle, but after it does, uh, it finally clears, you are surprised to see no trace of the temple at all. Soft green grass blankets the once dead earth, but most surprisingly is the only structure left standing. Standing just behind where the temple once stood is one of the realm gates. So this circle is now just a lush green. There's no trees and such, but grass has already popped back up. It's just like a big green field. There's a realm gate that they wouldn't have seen because it was behind the uh, the temple. The temple collapsed, and now they can see it. Uh, you remember the realm gates and how those work. Um, and then they can already see the trees starting to come back to life. Like, it's not going to be overnight. It's going to be a long time for the for this spell to keep working its way out into the forest. Um, but it's going to happen. It's going to regrow the forest, this spell of healing and cleansing. Uh, Artemis is, is exhausted. It took every, she basically passes out at this point, and Lucas is freaking out, and they're like, no, no, she's just worn out. She's not hurt. Um, but they managed to, to get that done. So, wow. It's only 919. There's a good chance we're going to get to the end of some serious business today. Intriguing. I didn't think we would. You guys don't mind hitting a major climax in the story today, do you? A big part. Okay. Uh, they got a lot of they got a lot of wealth out of that. Mostly jewelries and such taken from the dead. Uh, but they didn't get a lot of magic items. It was mostly treasure. Again, to their already impressive wealth. Um, okay, so once that's done, of course, they immediately start making their way back down to the champ chapel where Kevin is. Um, she heads down to uh, see, because they've done that, and they're going back there to talk to Kevin. Um, grab it here. Where's that at? Um, once they return to the chapel, um, no one else knew, but Artemis knew as soon as she cast the spell that... Uh, not Kevin, his name was Trevor. I'm sorry, Trevor was the cleric. The old, the old cleric that was running it passed away. So by the, when they returned, they, they returned to find that Trevor had passed away while they were gone. Artemis knew the exact moment, but didn't share it because it, it was one of those things that she shouldn't. So the temple now technically belongs to Artemis. It's this nice little temple in the woods, um, but she can't stay. She has to go. They know where the source is now. They're at the end of 
the end game of we're in the end game now of all this stuff. They 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 what they've been working towards for years is now finally potentially within grasp. They have to go. Um, so we're going to go. They're like we we have to get back to Paxable. Uh, the fastest way is for them to go and use that realm gate, which they can do, but it's still going to be a bit of a travel. A couple days back up north again, and then they're going to have to travel from the Valley of Sacrifice down to Paxwall. As we all know, that's like several days to a week. They can probably pick up some horses there, and that'll speed things up. Um, the chapel itself is now Artemis' responsibility. And so she commands that both Lucas and Misha stay to protect it. Lucas not real happy about that. Um, but he, you know, he's going to do in this situation what he's told. He normally doesn't do that. Um, but he's like, I'm going to have to stay here for this. Uh, because, you know, this is why he was sent north. He also felt that pull to the north. And he knows they've done a great thing. You know, they just served the god to, to get rid of a, the basically anti of what they are. Um, he is blown away by the events that he was involved in. Templar for 20 plus years uh, with the temple and, and he got to be involved in some serious mojo. Uh, so now as the one protector of this new temple, he takes that on with Misha. Um, they wanted to protect it. They don't know if there's anybody else out there from uh, the evil clerics. So um, Mercy also wants everyone to stay, uh, her guys as well. So both the Owens brothers are going to stay. Seamus is going to stay. Quan is going to stay. She wants Ulrich to stay. He basically tells her to piss off. He's like, no, no. They got it. I'm coming with you. Um, I believe. Give me just a minute. I don't want to tell this wrong. Make sure where he's at. Um, okay, that's good. Give me just a second. I don't want to switch by. Okay. Yeah, yeah, he was with them. Okay, yeah, I thought so. So Ulrich goes with them. So the only minions that are going with them is Ulrich and Michael. Michael's coming with them as well. At this point, he's back with Dandy. He's like, I'm going to help you guys see this through to the end. Uh, and then we're going to have to talk about what life is for us after that. Because uh, he's got his own mission in life now. Um, and we'll see. Uh, but they start to head back. Okay, so they take the... Uh, Portal to the Valley of Sacrifice, as I said, make their way back to Paxawal. It is uneventful the trip home, fortunately. Um, although they are very, very rushing themselves, they do get their horses at this point, uh, and they, they're rushing themselves because now they know that he who seeks them knows where he is. I think we all know who they're talking about, Nilat, in that situation, Nilat Firemoon. Um, and they have a lot to prepare. They can't just get back there and jump in a boat and go. This is going to be a major voyage. So, as they get back to the city, um, they get Paxwell uneventful. They immediately go to the temple, talk to Bart and Sister Mara, talk about the chapel, or talk about what's going on that Artemis has been giving this. She shares with them the majority of the information of what happened. She does not talk about the pool underneath because she, she was told not to. Um, and she says that uh, the temple's there, so on and so forth. Um, and that she's been questioned that Again, the prophecy thing she got is that one day she would build a great temple there. Uh, Bart and um, Mara are just blown away by everything that's happened. This is serious business. Um, and say that should she decide to do that, to build a temple there, that they will assist her with funds and construction if she's looking to build a bigger temple there to basically bring presence of the good gods to the north. 
they're all about that. Um, that they'll help fund that as well. Um, now, for their voyage, the first thing they know is they're plotting the charts. And they know they've got to head south. They're going into some deep waters where no one's ever been. Sadly, the Miss Dandelion, while being a nice ship, is not going to be able to handle a voyage of this nature. They're going to need a bigger boat. And so Darsh immediately starts looking for a bigger ship. Uh, the church as well uh, is offered to help fund 25% of the ship's purchase uh, because the, the, for reasons of uh, future reasons, but they do that. Um, they had the choice of either trying to rent or hire a boat or buying one. Darsh chose to purchase another ship. A ship that's twice the size. Um, so he literally goes and buys one. We don't have time to have one built. He goes and he finds a ship. And he walks up and like, Hi, I want to buy your ship. This mentor walks on your boat. And they're like, this is my ship. I'm not giving up there. It's worth like 100000 gold. Cool, I'm giving you 500000 Get off my boat. And the guy's like, yeah, okay, we'll do that. I mean, he gives way more than what the boat costs. But he doesn't have time to play around. Uh, he immediately hits up Dorham and he's like, Listen, this is the thing. We're going on a big voyage. I, I'm, we're getting, Dorm helps him find the boat, and then Dorm's job is to get him a crew. Gets all the named crew, all the people that had names that he knows, jumping back on, everyone agrees to go. They reach out to the temple, they get themselves a sea mage, or a smage, as we like to call them. Uh, Tobias also agrees to come on this adventure. He's not technically a minion, he's an NPC, but he doesn't work for anyone. He's coming along as well. Uh, because, again, he's been with them for a lot of this now, and he also wants to see this through. And um, they're given some basic healing potions and stuff from the Mage Tower. Uh, Lamia, who uh, is his... she, uh, <clears throat> Tevin? Tobias is... is I'm saying all the wrong names here. Tobias is her uh, uh, apprentice at this point. He's her direct apprentice. Uh, she's like, yes, go. Find out magic stuff. I'd go myself if I could, but, you know, she can't. Um, and so they spend uh, several weeks preparing for this journey. Again, it's not overnight. They got to load the ship up. They got to get supplies. They got to get a crew. They've got to get everything set. Uh, they talk to Molly. <laughs> of course, Darsh gives him a pie, as he always does. Um, and they're preparing for their journey. So it takes several weeks. And this was almost one whole play session for us as a group. Was them working out the specifics of what they wanted to do. Uh, Darsh had already, at this point, the, the young lady who played Darsh knew she wanted a bigger boat. She wanted something larger. Now that she has those islands, now that Darsh, I should say, has those islands, he needs a boat that's going to be able to get there faster. And a bigger boat's definitely going to allow that. And a larger ship's going to allow for him to open up more trade uh, between the different kingdoms and such, uh, be able to transport more goods to start building on that island, should he choose to. Because um, again, we don't know what's going to happen after the source stuff happens, but should he choose to live on that island like he thought he wants to and build his own, basically, um, port, if you will, of trade there, um, a bigger ship is going to benefit that. Plus, the more ships you have, the better. Um, so all that's going, several weeks of prep, happen. They're getting close to the time to leave on that trip. They're literally within just a day or so. And then uh, this chapter started, uh, which is called All Aboard. So the name of the ship is the Morgenstern, which if I'm correct is the Morning Star in German. Uh, I believe. Because again, as we mentioned, uh, very often we use German as the language that represents a Minotaur. Uh, and the young lady who chose Darsh chose that word. I want to say it's because it meant Morning Star, which is what Mercy's main weapon is. Um, 
So the Morgan Stern is loaded with supplies and people. The last of the crew have come aboard, and Darsh is overseeing the final preparations before uh, setting sail. Artemis, Dandy, and Mercy have just come back on deck after stowing their gear. It's a beautiful day, and everyone on the ship is bustling and prepping the ship for the voyage. So again, a lot, twice the amount of crew they've had before. So a lot of new na- uh, no-named people, all the named people. I don't remember the name of the sea mage, but they have one. Um, looking at the docks, Mercy notices a rider. Uh, uh, Ian says, you're right, Morgan Stern is Morningstar. Excellent, thank you. I was pretty sure that was correct, but I forgot to look it up. <laughs> I appreciate that. So yes, that, the Morningstar is what he named this one. Because he had a habit of naming his ships for specific things. That doesn't change. Um, looking at the docks, Mercy notices a rider on horseback quickly approaching. Pointing him out to Artemis, it is easy to see that he wears a tablet, uh, the tablet of a Templar from the temple. He comes directly to the Morgenstern and speaks with one of the sailors. The sailor immediately boards the ship and goes to Dorham. They speak a moment. Dorham nods and makes his way to Darsh. Excuse me, Captain, says Dorham. But there is a messenger from the temple who wishes to speak with you. Uh, Darsh is like, of course. Bring him on up. And the other friends come and join up, hang up. Uh, Michael's there as well. Tobias is in his room that he's got. Uh, some of these people are sharing rooms and such. Um, Mercy and Artemis sharing rooms, things like that. Darsh has his own room. Um... Captain Fohammer, I bring a message from Lady Mara, which again is uh, the head cleric of healing of Tavian for that temple. Uh, there's a man at the temple asking for you. Lady Mara asks that you and your companions please come to the temple immediately uh, with great haste. The messenger does not know who they speak about, did not see the man, was only sent to bring them back. They're like, well, we were getting ready to set sail, but... This is the temple. The temple has been overwhelmingly good to them. Someone there needs to see them. They wouldn't call them if it was if it was silly. They know the temple knows they were supposed to leave today, so they're like, okay, fine. So Darsh and them grab a carriage or whatever, um, some horses, and and they go. Ulrich stays on the boat with Tobias. At this point, he doesn't need to go with just to the temple. In town, he deals with his own stuff. Usually, running some errands for Mercy as well. Like we need this type of weapons. I need some of this gear. He'll do a lot of that for her as well. Um, as well as a few other things that she specifically asked him for to look into that she doesn't tell everyone else about. And I'm not going to tell you about it yet because nobody else knew. We'll know when we get to it. Um, uh, so they, re- they get to the temple as quickly as they can. And uh, I read to them, You are escorted into the temple's private banquet hall. You step inside to find Lady Mara who rises from her seat, a troubled look on her face. You see several well-armed Templars standing around the room. Welcome, friends, she says. I apologize for interrupting your preparations for your voyage, but he insisted he see you before you left. The PCs are like, who? And they see a little head kind of pop up from the other side of the table. And again, you'll remember he speaks in a Scottish accent, so I apologize if I butcher this, but do you think you could have taken any longer getting here, you big ox? Comes a voice from behind two of the Templars to the, by the table. Stepping from behind them comes a short figure. His hair is wildly cut into a mohawk, and his beard is braided in two short ponytails. His face and body are now covered in tribal tattoos, and a large warhammer is strapped to his back. Did you really think I'd let you finish all this by yourself? asks Fig, a large smile on his face. So Fig has returned. You may remember Figgy as their gnome warrior friend who was raised by dwarves, who is now basically the leader of New Gullyville in what was old New York. Of course, they're like, they're excited to see him. Everybody comes in, cheers. You know, he 
Michael, he knew, he didn't know, uh, he, he met Mike, did he meet Michael? I think he met Michael. Yeah, he met Michael. So introduce everybody. Um, they asked, of course, how, how did this come to be? How did this happen? You're in a place where there's no magic. He says, I was trading with the centaur. So he had come out he, himself, because he did say he went occasionally. I, I said that very early. I set that up. He does occasionally go himself, and he was outside of the no magic zone talking to the centaur when that blasted Zoltan popped in and scared the hell out of my friends. He told me that you would soon be taking those weapons to an important place to finally be rid of them. He said that he is hunting you. Not he, but he, not Zoltan. He is hunting you and that you'd need my help. I returned home, packed my gear, and headed this way. So Fig has returned to join them in this final leg of this adventure. They're chatting for a few moments. They're excited to see Fig. They also know he's more than capable. Uh, even though he looks a little bit wilder than he used to, he's Fig meets Mod Max <laughs> kind of thing. Because he was always shaven head before. He always had a bald head. But now he's grown it out into this mo like thin mohawk-looking thing. Um, so Figgy's back. Um, suddenly you hear sounds of footsteps running up the hallways towards you. A Templar runs in and takes Mara aside. Her face gets a shocked impression as she heads to the door. You all need to come with me. And she heads out the door and they all follow her. Everyone runs down the hallway leading to the courtyard. Not like at a fast run, but a you know, quick walk. As you exit the building, you stop quickly to avoid running into the dragon. There's a dragon sitting there. Twill slides down from its back, and a moment later the dragon begins to shrink and change, once again taking the familiar form of Zack. Ma Lady Mara greets them both warmly, and Twill runs up to Darsh and says, I brought something for you. Twill has a map with exact coordinations of distance and how to get to the source. He says that they had received it from a very trustable source, though they had themselves have not been there. Zach says, I assure you, this came from a place that I trust completely. This will give you the exact directions you need to go. We did bring you one other thing as well, Zach says with a smile. Um... And it was like, okay, what's that? And Zach laughs. Oh, he should be arriving any moment. Uh, it's just then people begin to point to the sky, and looking up, you see two hippogriffs flying towards the courtyard. Hippogriffs. Um, not a griffin. I want to clarify that. Not a griffin. Hippogriffs. Making you aware. If you're not sure what a hippogriff is, uh, you might want to check out Harry Potter. Google it. It's, it's a mixture animal, uh, but it can fly. Uh, flying towards the courtyard. After a moment of circling, uh, they land in the center of the courtyard, and the familiar form of... King Firemoon rides on one, while Davin, his hippogriff keeper, rides the other. Um, Firemoon had hippogriffs. He's had hippo. It's not really been something that's come up, but he he has had hippogriffs for a while. Had a hippogriff trainer. That was part of his storyline way back in the day. He wanted hippogriffs, uh, so he has a specific trainer uh, that he hired. That's an elven guy named Davin, who handles that. Um, the two men climb down and Rafe hands uh, Davin his reins. Lady Mora, uh, Mora steps out to greet them. Uh, Greetings, King Firemoon. We're glad to have you here. Hello, my lady, he responds. Seeing you all walk up, uh, he turns to the characters and says, and a greetings to you as well. He also states that he was at home, awoken by the figure of Zoltan, arriving him and letting him know what was going on and that his brother was also seeking the source. I had to come and join with you. I had to see this finally put to an end. With your permission... I ask to join you on this voyage. Um, immediately, they're like, yes. Firemoon is a pretty BA fighter at this point. Um, on the same level, if not better, than Darsh and Mercy. He's, he's 
pretty high up there at this point. Um, Davin will stay in Paxiwal with the hippogriffs. You're not taking hippogriffs on a boat. It's just very stinky. You don't want to mess with that. Um, so that means joining them on this adventure will be Fig. Zack and Twill are not going. They just helped guide uh, Firemoon here um, and give them the, the, the maps that they needed, which they, of course, get to Gadget. Gadget's their navigator, Gnome Gadget. You may remember him. Um, Gasket, I'm sorry. To Gasket. And uh, um, so after everything's settled, there's a bit of a chatting, uh, everyone heads back to the morning, Morgenstern. Uh, both Rafe and Fig are given quarters. Um, Gask- Gasket is a little taken aback by Fig's appearance, but soon that is lost as they discuss Fig's unusual style of tinkering. Because um, Gasket's also a gnome, but he's never seen a gnome that looks like Fig. And once they start talking about some of the stuff Figgy has been able to figure out using old stuff he's found in New York, um, Gasket's very intrigued. Because again, he's a navigator, but he's still a tinker gnome. Um, nearly everything is ready and loaded, and after an hour or so, you are ready to set sail. So I gave them a couple minutes to chat. Yes, we're ready to go. Was there any last-minute thing you wanted before we leave? Because if they forgot it, they don't get it on the voyage. They did not. Dorm approaches Darsh and says, All's ready, Captain. Cargo is stored and all crew is accounted for. Darsh takes a minute to kind of look over the boat and look back at Paxawal, and then turns to Dorm and says, uh, Set sail, Mr. Dorm. Immediately, Dorm starts shouting out orders, crewmen scurrying everywhere, and after a moment, you feel the Morgenstern begin to move. The ship slowly pulls away from port, heading south towards Kronayar and towards the source. Because they have to cut close through Kronayar water, even though they're not stopping in Kronayar. Um, so there's a lot of travel. Okay, a few things that happen while they go, I'm going to cover that. The first week goes by without issue. You have a couple days of rough waters, but the Morgenstern cuts through the waves with ease. Dorn keeps the crew running with military precision. Watches are kept, weapons practices daily, any disagreement between crewmen are handled quickly and fairly. Uh, you pot course straight to uh, past Kronayar, um, where you don't run into any problems, which is very easy. Um, and then you continue using tools maps straight to the source. Um... So, sometimes I like to surprise the characters. Like, literally, the people playing. So we're sitting there, and I read that, and then everybody's sitting there talking, and I, I'll scream out, like, Darsh! <laughs> and everybody will start up. I'll be like, you hear a very light creak on the floor. You've always been a light sleeper, and it doesn't matter how good you are, it's almost impossible to move silently on a wooden ship. Darsh was asleep. So I asked Darsh, what does he do? And... He says, uh, I don't remember the specifics, but basically someone is in, in his quarters, and they shouldn't be, and they're trying to move silently, but you can't. Uh, Darsh immediately dodges in time to not be stabbed by the dagger, and he finds himself fighting a drow elf out of nowhere. At the time that that happens, because again, these things happen at the same time. I say, Darsh, that's what happens, what do you do? And I go, Dandy. You hear the sounds of someone picking the lock of your door. You can tell by the sound that they know what they're doing, but they're not that good. Um, she is able to... She's not sharing a room with... She's staying with Artemis and Mercy. She's able to get them up without making any noise. Um, they quickly grab their weapons, and as they do, the door comes flying open, and several crewmen coming in uh, to attack them. So, Darsh... 
manages to take out the drow that was trying to assassinate him. And the three that rush in to get the girls, they were ready, and they fight them off relatively effectively. They were also crew, and upon their deaths, their bodies change to drow. Coming out onto the main deck, everyone appears okay. Darsh comes out there, and he's just dragging the drow with him, and the other girls come rushing up a moment or so later. Dorms comes rushing up and asks, what what the hell's happening? And Darsh is like, this is what happened in the room. The girls come in. They're like, we just got attacked. They're like, by who? What? So on and so forth. Uh, Dorm's face goes red in anger, and he turns to the nearest sailor and yells, all hands on deck now, basically calling a full stop. Everybody there. Sailors run off, echoing the command. In just a moment, the entire crew is on deck. Uh, Dorm has a roll call done, and all missing crew are accounted for, except seven, which is the amount of dead... I'm sorry, there were more than one drow in Darsh's room. There were seven total that they managed to kill. Um, let's see. So Tobias, uh, who's with them, and the other sea mage and such, uh, use detect magic to try to see if they can find any more hidden drow on the ship. Um, they do not. Um, the drow had come on as no-named sailors and had taken... Um, They'd probably been in Paxawal for a while because they didn't take people that they didn't have at least a decent, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Reference? That'd be the word I'm looking for. Um, oh, welcome back, Fuji. <laughs> so they tried to assassinate the main characters and they failed. Um, uh, they do cast a spell. They don't find anyone else on there. Dorm approaches Darsh privately, apologizing, taking full responsibility and offering to step down um, should he wish, Darsh is like, I mean, there's no way you would have known. I'm not holding this against you. You're fine. And he did. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Where are we at next? Oh, I'm so sorry. They did go to, they did have to go to Kronayar. I forgot a part. I'm so sorry. They travel, takes them that time to get to Kronayar. They try to get assassinated. They almost get assassinated on the way to Kronayar. They stop at Kronayar to pick up some more supplies. Uh, you they arrive in Kroniar a week later, the Morgenstern being much faster than the Dandelion, which is their other ship. Uh, they're uh, pulling to port, and it's also uh, get there much faster when you've got two mages helping you fly, uh, uh, go faster. As they approach the harbor, they are directed to a specific port. They pull in the ship and tie off. Harbor guard checks their papers and gives Darsh three days. After that, he'll have to make payment uh, to be there any longer, but his status gives him those three days. Um, while they're there in Kronayar, there are a few things that they tried, they, they accomplished. Um, Darsh goes and, of course, visits Rokar. He's home. Uh, they invite Darsh to stay there while he's there. He agrees to do so. So instead of staying on the boat or uh, any, in an inn, Darsh stays with his cousin. It's a big sign, it's a sign of respect. Um, uh, while they are there... Um, and he tells of the adventure and what's going on, and he knows kind of. And Darsh talks to him about his plans for the future. Um, Rokar specifically requests um, to join Darsh's crew uh, permanently. He said that he's saved up a decent amount of gold, um, but he's wanted to make more. Um, hearing Darsh talk about the business, uh, Rokar wants to help build the family business here on this new world, uh, so that he has something to pass on to his children. Um, and he requests to join on, and Darsh takes him on as a second mate. So Rokar the Minotaur is now on Darsh's ship moving forward. They get all the supplies they need. They're not able to find any information on the source while they're there. They do talk to Senator Borum. You remember, that's the senator that helped them out while they were there. There were no news about the Black Horn, the group that was the assassins. They appear to have gone quiet, at least temporarily. 
Um, they advise that when Darsh is ready to start his trade business, that they should contact him specifically. Uh, Borum has several business opportunities he'd like to discuss with him. Uh, but they do also mention that just a few days ago, uh, a large ship was seen traveling south through the western edge of their territory, although they did not come into contact with the ships, they were sighted. So another ship heading the same direction they're going to be going. Other than that, after a couple days or a day or so of gathering stuff, Rokar moves on, kisses his wife goodbye and his kid and such. I'll be back when I'm back. But, I mean, he's out on boats most of the time anyways. He's a Navy guy. He gives his um, notice to the Navy or, or the ship that he was on. I hate to see him go, but they understand. Joining up with family, biz stuff. Um, the Morgenstern again leaves port, heading towards the source. So the village uh, voyage south from Kronear is long and mentally exhausting. The first month went well, but eventually the endless sea with no land in sight begins to take its toll. Tobias was very helpful at this point. He began regularly entertaining the crew with tricks and illusions, and much like he's done for Dandy. Uh, overall, it was an enjoyable trich, uh, a ship, the, a trip. The Morgenstern is a wonderful ship, cuts through the water like a blade, and Darsh immediately took to his captain's role. The crew are much in awe of him, even Rokar. Uh, now it is midday, early in the seventh week, when the call is first heard. Nathalian, which remember, that's, their, that's his, uh, Darsh's elven half-navigator, half, navigator, half uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Scout. He's the guy who sits up in the mask and looks for stuff. Very good eyes, elven guy. Uh, starts yelling, ship ahoy to stern. Everyone rushes to the stern, uh, searching the sea. Takes a moment for you to see it, because again, he has better eyes than almost everybody else. Um, it's barely a dot on the horizon. Uh, but once again, Darsh is amazed by Nathalian's keen eyesight. The ship isn't moving much faster than you. By the next morning, it's still far enough away that it's hard to make out specific details. It's large, to be sure, and it is directly following them. Darsh pushes the crew harder, using the mages as much as possible. But over the next day, the ship continues to slowly gain ground. Um, let's see. It's at this time that Nathalian's voice is heard yelling, Land Ho! Everyone comes rushing to the bow, and what they see takes their breath away. So I'm going to talk to you real quick about the source. The source is not an island. It is, but it's not. Um, first of all, the first thing you have to know about the source is it's a hole. Imagine a perfect circle in the middle of the water. Right? Almost like a, a drink. No spiral. Water just going straight over a perfect hole. Um, it's important, and it's large enough that it's like a small city. It's a huge hole in the middle of the ocean. And this, what I'm about to tell you, will be much more important later. You would think that approaching this big hole, the water current would be pulling them in. You know, this water's going off like a giant waterfall in this massive hole. But in truth, it's actually very, very different. What's happening instead is it's getting harder to go because the water is coming towards them. This massive hole, as you would imagine water going off in a perfect smooth edge, the water is actually coming up and feeding the ocean. The water is not going down. It's like this is literally providing the water 
for this ocean slowly coming up and spreading out and it's the sound of a waterfall it's loud you can hear it but it's water going up um, in a smooth transition um, bear with me I'm seeing if I have a picture while I'm looking at this um, but uh, one thing that's uh, important to know about the source floating above it is an island so up in the air, just floating there is an island. Now, the island is clearly not land that was pulled out of it. The island is much smaller than this big hole. But it looks like the Flying Citadel back in the day. There's a bit of rock hanging down from it. And it appears to be, what they can see, it looks like trees. But there appears to be some type of crystal dome over the top of it. it looks like glass or crystal or something that's see-through. Um, but it seems very clear, just, just tinted enough that you can tell that it's there. Um, so... That's a thing. Uh, give me just a second here. Not that one. Not that one. I have some pictures I'm going to post for you guys here very soon that's going to uh, show you guys some of the art that I used for design for some of the places that we've been to, um, which I'm excited to, to share those with you as well. I'm going to put some of those up here in the next week over... Um, on the website. So you'll see some of the art and things that I found that helped me uh, design some of the, the places that we've been to in this adventure. I'm not finding the picture of the source. I have a good picture that I found of a hole uh, that looks very cool, but I'll have to find it later. But just imagine that a massive, perfect circle where water is just smoothly coming out of it and moving out into this ocean. So the current's not bad enough that it's pushing them hard. They're just having to work at it to get in there. Um, so, the water's incredibly deep here. There's no anchor. The boat's going to have to keep going. And that other boat is still hanging out. Is the art on the character page? It, it will be. I haven't put it up there yet. No, I apologize. I couldn't find... I haven't had to look at this picture in so long. I, I honestly... I'm not sure which file I have it in. And it's, I thought it was in my D&D file, but it is not. Uh, so, I'm not sure where I've got it. I'm going to have to track it down so I can put it up there. But I have... Foolishly, a lot of different D and D files that I've built over the years of different things. So uh, all the characters are in one spot. I'll have to get the picture of that one soon. I apologize that I don't have it today. Um, but the the uh, the island above it again looks nice. It appears to be some trees in there. There may be a building. It's hard to see. It's very high up, but it's floating perfectly over the center of this hole. So there's no way up there. There's no stairs. Way too far to throw a rope. The only way to get up there is to fly. Hey, guess who has a flying carpet? <laughs> now, here's the thing with the flying carpet. The flying carpet does not have enough room to carry everybody. So it does have to take a couple trips. And not everybody is going to go up here. Um, our main characters are with Ulrich and Michael. Rokar and them and all the ship's people. Are, Darsh isn't bringing anybody. All of them are staying to take care of the boat. Darsh is like, something happens to me. The boat is yours. Carry on the family business kind of thing. Um, Dorham understands that. Even though Dorham's the first mate, he knows the, the family stuff. Um, Michael's going with Dandy because they're kind of like glue again. And uh, he doesn't go anywhere. Doesn't want to go anywhere. She doesn't. And uh, Ulrich's the same with Mercy. Ulrich doesn't leave Mercy's side. Uh, Firemoon, Fig... They're both going as well. And Tobias. So it takes 
two trips. But the first trip is our main characters. They're going to go up first. Even the minions that want to go understand they're in the second wave. So our main characters fly up, and as they're going up, they do see a small landing area. Uh, again, imagine a round island floating in the sky. The rock comes down from it. On one side, there's a piece of rock sticking out that you could stand on. And there's room for 15, 20 people there. It's a little place. And on that, into the rock, is a door. That makes sense? Cool. So, um, they go up there. They stop. They don't open the door. They send the, the uh, Dandy takes the carpet down because he's the smallest. Brings up the second wave of people. And that group that we talked about is now there. Uh, so the door itself has no handle, but there is something on the uh, door, like it's like round and it sigils and such, and none of the mages or clerics have any, the sigils mean nothing to anybody. So it's not a known writing of any kind. That's important. Um, but in the center of it is a, an odd-shaped hole. And looking at it, they take some time. It's Dandy that realizes it's like you'd stick a blade in. So they try putting some of their swords and such in. None of it will, literally won't even begin to fit through. Um, and I believe it was Mercy who's like, hey, we brought all these magical weapons here for a reason. Let's try those. So for the first time since they've got them, they open up the chest of holding, they go down, and they take out all the magic artifact weapons. This is, an, this is a, a gathering of powerful artifacts. And sure enough, Mercy takes one of the swords and it slides perfectly into the lock. It turns, and then the sword comes out, but then the door cracks kind of in two like a jagged, and then it kind of opens up inwards. Stone door slowly slides... Oh no, sorry, slides to the left. I read that wrong. The darkness inside is immediately illuminated uh, by a bright white light that seems unnatural. They decide to go inside. This chamber... Oh, I see where this is headed. Very nice. <laughs> this chamber is dome-shaped with two other doors. One on the left, one on the right. As you all step inside, you become aware of a humming noise coming from all around you. It is constant and is unchanging. For those of us that know what that is, it would imagine almost like the sound of a machine. Humming. Suddenly a loud sound comes from the floor in the center of the room. Everyone steps back quickly, drawing their weapons as a three-foot hole opens. Rising from it is a dais. So a little pedestal lands up. Um, his eyes, and standing on top of it is a four-foot-tall humanoid figure. He, if it is in fact a he, is unlike anything you've ever seen before. He appears to be made of some kind of metal, and lines of green light run trace intricate signs upon its body. Its eyes also emit a green light. Uh, so if we were to imagine what this looks like, imagine like the movie Tron with the green lights, like the lines. That's kind of what the body's like. And it, well, greetings, key bearers, it says. Welcome to the source. I am Alpha. It has taken you a long time to get here, and I know you have fought hard, but you have not yet reached the final gate. Um... Basically, they, they ask a couple generic questions. What is the source? It's the same thing. You will know it when you see it. You will know it when you get there, so on and so forth. He explains to them that there are two doors. There's the chaos gate, and there's the order gate. And they must choose which direction they wish to take. The chaos gate is more dangerous. 
but it is a faster route to this to the to the central gate. The order gate is safer, but it takes longer. They must choose one gate to enter in order to reach the central gate. Um, also explains that the gate keys are powerless within the source, except as keys. So the second they state you walk through one of those doors, every one of these artifact weapons they've been carrying, absolutely no magical ability at all, other than the fact that they're still indestructible. They lose all of their abilities and skills. Because, you know, as a DM, I can't have them walking in there with the most, an arm, everybody carrying two or three of the most magical artifacts in existence. That would not be uh, very fair. I'd have to throw 20 dragons at him to make it fair. Now, he, he also states this. Um, they, yeah, the only thing they work as are as keys to the central gate like they used to get in here. He says, and this is the important thing. You must know this, that once you enter the gate of your choice the world clock will begin and the timer will start if you fail to reach the central gate before the world clock is over all becomes null and null begins again I'm like what does that mean and he'll, from that point on the only thing he'll say to anything they ask is choose your gate our heroes being the rebellious type decided they're going to take the chaos gate the more dangerous but faster one um, and so, they also noticed that the door behind them did not close. That's a concern. Um, and the chaos gate does not require a key to go in. They approach the gate, and they it opens. As soon as they say, tell Alpha which gate they choose, that door opens and they can walk in. And as soon as they do, all the artifact weapons have no ability. They go through. The chaos gate closes behind you. Before your eyes have had a chance to adjust to the darkness, lines of red light fill the walls, floors, and ceiling. Again, kind of like the Tron stuff, but in many ways forming these glyphs and symbols no one has any recommend, uh, knows anything about. The room is very large and oval-shaped. The floor is flat, except at its center, where there's a small dome-like rise about three feet in diameter and one foot high. So imagine like an eyelid kind of thing. Far on the opposite wall is another gate-like door. They're like, okay, well, we got to go with that door. And they begin walking. As soon as they do, that dome thing opens, and rising from it is a 15-foot uh, machine-like creature person that Alpha was, um, with red lines match the room. I am Delta, and you are trespassing in the halls of chaos. You are given one chance to save your lives. Place the realm keys on the ground and leave this place immediately, or else you will be terminated. Um, and they're like, well, we, we can't do that. And he's and like, we have to get past you. He goes, I have the key to the next room, and you cannot pass as long as I stand. I will destroy you, or you can give me the keys and go back out. Um, they choose not to give the keys and go back out, and battle begins. Um, this combat was a little bit more uh, specific. Each person, each uh, again, much like a video game, each boss they're fighting here has their own special attacks. Um, sparks and bits of electricity uh, on this guy, he sizzles with that kind of stuff. Um, he has a thing where literally his arms is 
part of body where his arms are will spin, and the arms just do this fast clubbing motion, which will hit anybody in a specific range. So he's trying to get in close on people, and then do that spin move, which he can do ever so many rounds. Then it has to recharge back up, and they can see the light charging, going from a dull to a pink to a red, and that's how they know once it gets red to the same color as the rest of his body, it can do it again. That's a pattern they had to find out. Um, and again, uh, with this type of weapons, see, that's the damage it did. Um, and all bladed or piercing weapons only do half damage against him because he's a blunt thing. So swords and such, they're still their ma- the regular swords that they brought, like their magic weapons, not the artifacts. They're still magical. It's only the artif- artifacts that have no magical ability. So they're fine. Uh, they do fight him. People get beat up a decent amount, but it wasn't too hard. They managed to make it past him pretty good. And once they do defeat him, sparks and bits of electricity sizzle and pop from Delta's body as it tips over backwards and falls to the ground. You hear a small noise come from its chest. When they check the chest, the door is opened, and there is a large key there. Big key. Which they then use to unlock the next chamber. They walk inside. Once again, the chamber lights up as you enter. Once inside, the doors close behind you, and this chamber is much like the last, but without the mound that had concealed Delta. Instead, you see four small mounds, kind of in a square, uh, in the, around the center area as well. Um, uh, small, yes, okay. So they begin to move forward, waiting, because they're expecting something at this point, you would. And as such, a, a big hole opens in the ceiling. And something falls out. Suddenly a large hole appears in the ceiling in the center of the room. A large shape drops from it, landing in the center of the four mounds. Um, As it lands, four, which almost look like Dr. Octopus tentacles, things go out and clank into the four round nobs that were sticking in the ground. You have survived against Delta, an impressive feat. One you shall not repeat again. I, Zeta, shall crush you and give your realm kings to Ep- give your realm keys to Epsilon. That's important. It's the first time they heard the word Epsilon. And then immediately it jumps into battle. Now his body um, is a very soft rubber-like body, so when they hit it, opposite situation, blunt weapons, he only takes half damage because of the softness, whereas bladed weapons slashing and piercing would be more effective in this situation. And this is something that they they had to learn jumping in attack. Each, each fight was its own different. Um, uh, let's see here. Every third round, he will pull, because he, he pulls those he pulls up one of those balls up and is basically trying to hit them with it. When it comes out, it's not just a dome. It's a full solid ball. Um, and every third round, he fires one. And it's like a hand at a PC, uh, one of the characters. And if it grabs them, it will literally, like a giant hand, grab them and do serious electrical damage and then come back to him. So every three rounds, he was shooting one of those hands. No matter if they got around him, he had four of them. He could shoot one in a different direction. Um, and the, well, I'm sorry, the, the hand would clank to the ground, a new one would come out of the hole, and the pipe would, the hose would just click into that, and he'd have a whole new hand again. Um, uh, so they were, um, every melee hit they did as well, every time they hit him, uh, they did 1d4, they received 1d4 image of, he's, a, he's rubber, so he's fine, but they get shocked every time they hit him with something metal. For a little bit of damage, but enough that it was annoying. Uh, finally, the electricity that's cracking all over his body as they beat him, he falls to the ground. The electricity that uh, danced across Zeta's body stops as he falls to the ground. Again, they hear a noise, uh, and inside a small door opens in his body, revealing a key. Hello, Patches. 
you arrived just in time for some big fights. They use that key to then open the... Now, as they're doing this, as they're opening the gate, I should say that they are going up some stairs to get to the next door. I didn't mention that. I apologize. So they go through a door, go up some stairs, walk into the next room. So they're kind of going around into chamber into chamber. In this one, the door reveals a winding staircase. Uh, and the stairway is lit by some the same red lights they've seen in each of these rooms. The only direction to go is up. They quickly climb the stairs as quickly as they can. After about 15 minutes of climbing, they finally reach the top, and another door stands in their way. But this time, there appears to be an opening mechanism on it. So literally, there's something they can grab and turn, and it'll open the door. Um, let's see here. Uh, ba -ba 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 -ba. Dandy had been checking. She checks for traps. She finds that this door is trapped successfully. Had she failed, anybody who would have tried to open the door would have been hit with so much electricity, they would have been knocked unconscious for 30 minutes basically eliminating them for the rest of the fight. But she managed to do it, and they managed to disarm the trap, even though it's something she's never seen before. She has very high scores. The door slides open to reveal a massive chamber. Seated on a throne across from you is another one of these constructs. It probably stands close to 20 feet tall. Don't be shy, it says in a deep metallic voice. Please, come in. Now, the other ones were very robotic, and you may not enter, blah, 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 blah. This one's more got more human voice to it. Come in. As they walk in, the construct says, I didn't expect you to make it this far. But sadly, I cannot allow you to go any further. You see, I like things the way they are. I like the anarchy caused by all the ants trapped inside their little farm. Sadly, everything you've been through will mean nothing, and the cycle will begin again. You may take some pleasure in knowing that this is Epsilon himself, servant of the Master, who takes your life this day. But take your life, I must. And it rises from its throne and moves forward. Now this was a big fight. Um, and they had to do a lot. It's immune to all magical weapons. So they had to use only the weapons they had that were non-magical. Uh, magical weapons, any damage done. It took him a few turns to realize that I did 10 damage, but it really wasn't doing anything. They were, fortunately, after the other rooms, trained a little bit to realize different weapons were doing different things. So they all just switched to their non-magical weapons. Uh, every five rounds, a minion appears um, uh, around him, just a small, like, electrical minion, and starts moving towards one of the corners of the room. The corners of the room uh, have, like, almost like a pillar, so you're just seeing part of the round part in the corner, and it has the glowing glyphs on it. And when a minion doesn't attack them, just starts walking slowly towards that, or floating towards it. Um, and if it gets to the, and hits that, it explodes and heals Epsilon for a certain amount of damage. Took a couple of those before they realized he was being healed, so while they're fighting him, some members of the party are having to fight those things to keep them from getting to the pillars which heal Epsilon. Um, so let's see, uh, they, there's no immune, all weapons will work on them. Um, so this is a big fight, they take a bit of damage, he's very melee, he doesn't have any weapons, but he's just punching, he's 20 feet tall, it's like a giant, he's, he's a big hoss. Uh, so he did some big hits, uh, and this used up a lot of their heals on this fight. Um, Artemis being the only real healer in this situation, um, she used a lot of her heals up after this battle. But they did manage to defeat Epsilon. He also had a stomp attack, which doing that would cause anyone in a certain distance to fall to the ground, which is pretty cool. 
They do eventually, though, beat him. I, hopefully I'm not breezing over this too much. I'm not, I don't want to go into the he stabbed and she stabbed. I'm giving the gist of how the battle worked. If anybody ever wants more detail on the battles and would like me to do a special stream where I just go way more into detail into the combat, I can do that. Throw that down in the comments or come into the Discord, put it in the Merge World thread. Um, I wouldn't care to do some offshoot episodes to talk more about the mechanics or show more of the maps or show more of the stuff about how the game worked going up to this or how I came up with ideas. I'm kind of happy to do that if somebody would like be interested in a maybe a short 30-minute video once in a while where I just answer questions. So, something to throw out there. Epsilon falls to his knees. No, he cries. Not again. And with that, falls to the ground. Immediately, the last door, which was next to his throne, uh, opens, revealing another set of stairs. They heal up what they can. Nobody heals the full. Artemis tries to keep a few of her heels in case they're really needed. Uh, and then they get to the stairs and they start rushing up again. They get to the top of the stairs and throw open the door, because it looks like a regular door, and immediately see sunlight. And this chapter, my friends, is called The Central Gate, The End of the Story. Not the end of Merge Worlds. I've got lots more Merge Worlds. But the end of this story. Stepping through the doorway, you find yourself on soft green grass. The shield dome is high overhead, and the smell of sea air is strong. So that glass dome is, is, is like a glass, but it is indestructible. They didn't bother to try, but had they, nothing was going to break that. It's a magical glass. This is as I read to them. This, everything these guys had built through for years of playing D&D had built up to this moment. Before you was a large building. At first glance, you would describe it styled kind of like a temple. On its right side of the front wall is a set of huge double doors. It's what stands before those doors that fills your heart with dread. Though you've only seen him once, the visage of Nilat Firemoon is all too familiar. His smile is evil incarnate, and his eyes are like black voids of darkness. And that's true. He doesn't have pupils. His eyes are just black. Remember, he's still halfway between that spell to become a god. So he's not normal f human at this point. He's kind of trapped in an odd form. Um, no less than eight drow elves stand at his side. None looking average. I, each is uniquely equipped and all giving off an aura of experience. So I wanted that the, them to know that these are not just eight drow elves. These are general. These are people that know how to fight. Greetings, my brother, he says in a deep, echoing voice, because again of his thing, when he talks, there's an echo to when he talks. Though he stands a ways away, his voice is as clear as if he stood before you. Once again, you bring this rabble before me, and once again, you will see them fall. I must admit, I am impressed with your perseverance. Some of you even found a way to defeat death to face me again. And I must say, for that I am flattered. Which, remember, some of these people were dead for a while. The darkness you have become ends today, Nilat, responds Rafe. I cannot allow your corruption to continue. Nilat's laugh echoes through the courtyard. You have always been a fool, brother. I will take the realm keys from your corpses and use them to complete my transformation. I shall be a god and I will rule this new world safely within its protective bubble. And with no other god to oppose me, my rule shall be absolute. Um, there's some... I give them a moment to, to speak. There's some boasting. We're going to kick your butt. No, you're not. Things and so on. 
you understand, we're going to kill you and this and that. And he just shakes his head. You fools still don't understand. I have but to keep you from the central gate to defeat you and gain another chance at godhood. No matter how many times we must do this dance, I will persevere and eventually I will be victorious. They're not quite understanding what he's saying, but they're like, well, we're going to beat you anyway, so on and so forth. So be it then, whispers Nilat as his body begins to be surrounded by a black smoke of darkness. Come, fools, let us see how this ends this time. And combat began. And the drow come rushing in to do damage. Nilat's casting spells at the beginning. Um, it's mostly Tobias and Artemis that are trying to um, block the spells and trying to do that. Um, see, Jim says, I posted in the Discord, uh, very much more detailed on the battles. I don't know much about how it works, but I enjoy learning. I always wanted to do a series called Behind the Dice. Like just a 30 or 40 minute quick podcast where I pop on or story and just talk about the mechanics of D&D and how I play the game and how I design things and my process. Uh, it's something that I thought about doing in the very beginning of this. So it's something that it may be a time to actually do that. Just do a behind the dice mini story. Something I, I may look at putting in here in the near future. Now that we're getting to the end of this, I've got a lot that I could go back and review with people as I continue with the story. Uh, so they fight, and again, they fight the drow. And there's a, there's a lot of damage that's done. Uh, the party uh, definitely gets beat up a good chunk here. Um, Tobias has is, is gotten a decent um, level that his magic, while nothing comparing to Nilat, is able to defend them from some of his spells. And that's what Tobias's main thing is here. He's defending uh, them and disrupting or trying to block the magic. He has several magic items that he brought given from... Um, <clears throat> his mage lady, uh, that he's using because that's what they are, magic items. That's his thing. And the magic items is really what's making the distance. His spells help, but the magic items, are, a lot of them are one-use items, but they're powerful enough to weaken the spells that Nilat's throwing while everyone else is kind of fighting the drow. As the drow start to fall, um, as they do, um, and Nilat's spells start to dwindle himself, uh, he then drops it and draws swords himself and enters into melee combat. Um, and at one point, everybody, you know, I, I made it a very fluid battle, so it's not Ulrich's fighting this drow, Darsh is fighting this drow, you know, Rafe is fighting, the, it's very fluid. Well, people are moving about the battlefield. One moment, you, Mercy might be fighting against a drow, and then suddenly her and Darsh are against Nilat. And then a minute later, they're fighting another drow, and Firemoon is against, Rafe is against Nilat. So I made it very fluid. Each round, I say, as people moved, unless they said something, I want to specifically do this, I would be like, this is how the scene is shifted. This is who you're facing now. Because on a battlefield, as you're attacking this way and blocking this way, you turn around, somebody may have stood between you, and now they're fighting that guy you were fighting to begin with. I want it to be a very fluid battle. Instead of just the, I'm attacking this person every time until they drop, and now I'm attacking this person. Which, to me, has always felt a little bit too mechanical. Um... Uh, bah, 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 bah. So most of the drow are down at this point, and Nilat's taken a couple good hits. I am not to be defeated so easily, yells Nilat. His body begins to glow and change, lengthening, and in less than a moment he has trammed and formed himself into a giant dragon snake. So it's like a dragon, but without the hands, much more of a snake, and with the kind of that wisp of that shadow that keeps coming off his body, that darkness that's part of his essence. Um, it's over a hundred feet long. 
I shall feast on your souls, it hisses, as battle then renews. Um, by this point, the drow are gone and everybody is fighting the, the snake thing. Um, and let's see, Mercy was knocked out at one point. Artemis was able to bring her back up. Darsh was down to almost unconscious. Uh, Dandy was about to go down, but Michael got in the way. Michael was knocked out. No one was able to heal him during the battle. So he's kind of laying there unconscious. Um, Dandy and Ulrich both standing over him trying to defend his body while Mercy's up close trying to do more damage. Um, so that was going on. I remember that from the bottom. But over time, eventually, as they're fighting, the dragon is more physical-based, biting. It had a breath weapon that was like a darkness thing that was very cold and slowed them down, so they were doing less damage while taking damage. Um, but he could only do that ever so many rounds. Because um, I created this creature. This is a creature of my own. It's not in the Dungeon Master Monster Manual or anything like that. Um, but eventually, through battling, and Rafe, Rafe took some hits as well, but Nylat always pulled punches on Rafe. Rafe was always, because he, he's still his brother, he still loves him, he thinks he's a fool, but his goal is to become a god and then change Rafe's mind and teach him of the mistakes of his ways and let him rule the world with him. He's always had that goal. Even if it means killing him, he's like, oh my god, I'll bring you back, what's it take? But finally they do enough damage that the snake's body falls to the ground. And again, within a moment, it has once again transformed back into the familiar shape of Nylat. The last stab that took it down was... Rafe, and his sword was pulled from his body as it did, and the, the sword is still sticking through Nylat when he takes back his human form. Uh, lines of black blood run from the wound and from the sides of his mouth. He coughs once more and then says, "You cannot win. Time is always time is almost up. I shall see you again in the next cycle." Rafe is standing there looking down at his brother, and he wants to take the sword and end it, but it's his brother, and there's a hesitation. You know, he's like, it's like, it's still his brother. He knows the evil he's done, and he's just standing there as his brother's dying, and he, you know, he's, he's kind of caught. And as he's about to reach for his weapon, a small hand holds him and steps in between him and Nylat. We will see you in the next life, demon, whispers Fig, who then brings his hammer down on Nylat's head, crushing the last of the life from him, with a sickening crunch. Haya bunk, he whispers. Hey, buddy. Another kitty visiting. Patches his back. Fig has no such hesitation. He knows Nylad only as the man that killed Moog, and uh, he, wasn't, he, he was more than happy to end that. A moment later, the doors open behind him slowly allowing them access to the temple. Now, don't lick my microphone, you gross kitty. <laughs> Sorry. Now, they know that time is up. They can, they've heard it. I've, I've implied that there's a, a clock. They know there's a time limit, though they don't know how much time is left. Um, but they're, if, I always view that if I was telling the story, as these things were happening, they defeated one room's construct and going to the next, it would flash to an hourglass and less and less sand. That's how I always was kind of, between the battle as things were happening, I always imagined it flashing back to that hourglass, a mechanical hourglass with more sand, which really tiny, small beads. Because um, it's all mechanical looking in here. We must hurry, uh, someone says. And uh, Darsh picks up um, Michael, because he's the big, easy. They don't have any spells left to bring him up at this point, And they rush inside. Because they still don't know what they have to do. They just know this is where they're trying to get. 
The inside of the temple is beautifully carved, again, with runes everywhere. Um, you know, just like the sigils and runes that they don't read, they couldn't read. Moving in the room and around the corner uh, through an archway, they find themselves standing before the central gate. It stands on a dais approximately three foot tall, so just a three foot tall dais, very large round. Um, the gate itself looks like all the other realm gates you've seen, but twice the size. So it's a massive room with this giant realm gate. They rush in. The gate, unlike the key doesn't work. It doesn't look like that. And they rush up and they're like, what do we have to do? And they can hear like a ticking sound of like a clock. Like they know time is running out. They have to figure out the puzzle. Um, and it's searching into it and looking around. They find that chunks of the realm gate are missing. Now, you remember, the realm gates were indestructible. Nothing magic, weapon could scratch them or mar them. They were completely indestructible. And upon realization of looking, many of these cracks and spaces, the different artifact weapons would fit into. And as they, they start finding the right weapons that fit in the right spots, it's like putting together a puzzle. And they're trying to do this. And I had a timer going. I had an hourglass on my desk. They saw it going. They knew how much time they had. And I had some puzzle pieces that they literally had it drawn out. Where they, I, I don't have them anymore. They got lost. But they actually had to figure out which one goes where. Because not every weapon just perfectly went in flat. Some might slide in forward. Some might go on a side. They had to figure out which puzzle piece fit where. Kind of like a little Tetris thing. And they only had like two minutes to do it. And I said, there you go. And they had to figure it out. And if they'd failed, I had a contingency. I want to be aware of that. There was no guarantee of success. But they were successful and able to figure out the puzzle in time. As you place the last artifact into the gate, literally once they put them in, it like kind of like melted so it became solid again, so there was no longer any line of the artifact weapon. Uh, begin, uh, the gate begins to glow. Red and blue electricity crackles within it, and it grows in intensity until with a loud pop, the gate opens. So everybody's falling back because it's becoming this big swirly gate. Although the swirlingness of the gate is like a myriad of colors and shapes that they can't even begin to describe. Colors and things that they've never even knew existed. Magic. And that gate pops as it opens. And in that moment, time stops. Literally. You can't tell if it's for a second or for a year, but everything stops. And just as suddenly as it begins again, everyone falls to the ground drained. You struggle to your knees or into a sitting position, depending on who they are, trying to stare at the gate because it's very bright and blinding. All eyes are drawn to it and you feel weak and nervous, sensing the approach of something, something very powerful. Now, they are having a hard time moving because it's like they're moving super slow and they feel this powerful force coming towards them, like coming towards the gate. And out of the corner of their eyes, as they're looking around the room, they see figures, people. They see themselves. They see people they've met. They see people they don't know all standing in different groups, in different sections. Sometimes it's them with maybe people they met along the way. Maybe Zarin is there instead of uh, Mercy. Maybe in this group over here, 
it's Lucas or maybe somebody they met, um, you know, Rokar instead of Darsh. There's, the groups of people are all there and all kind of translucent and everyone is standing there and you realize that while you're you standing there, all these people are them standing there as well. They are as real where they are as you are where you are. All of that was fact. That's how I explained it to them anyways. Um, ba, 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 ba. Through the central gate's opening, uh, stepping from it is a massive figure. And as they do, all the other figures disappear and it's just our group. Waves of power wash over you. And there is no doubt that the being before you is a god. So literally, a god has stepped out of this portal before them. Now, Artemis has had some questies and had some dreams with gods, but none of them have melted god in pure form. And it's almost enough to wipe you out. The being that steps out is unlike anything they've ever known or seen or ever heard about. Standing, like a uh, very tall, I don't remember if I have tall, but very tall. Probably about uh, 14, 15 feet tall. The figure steps out, and it's almost like their body's made out of a smooth white marble. Or a smooth black onyx. And I say that, obviously those are two different colors, because the body is shifting. Imagine the figure of a, of a male, man standing there, made out of, you know, white uh, thing. And then imagine a female figure made out of black onyx. All right, so you're picturing two different figures at this point. Okay? Now imagine if that body was constantly shifting parts of it between one and the other. So half the face is male, then female. Then it's an all-male face, but the arm is female. And it's constantly shifting back and forth between those. And almost like they're fighting for dominance of the body. I'm sorry, the male was black, the female was white. I said that wrong. I apologize. The reverse of that. So the male is black and the white one. You have done well, chosen ones. Uh, this new world is finally whole. And for that, we thank you. And when they're speaking, you hear the male and the female voice. And sometimes it may be a little bit more male, a little bit more female based on how it's shifting, but you hear both voices at the same time. We thank you for finally completing that which we have labored so long to create. We are Omniana. And it shifts almost purely to the female form, the white one. And she states, or no, sorry, to the male form, the black one. It states, I am Omnion, God of Chaos. And then it shifts to the, the white female and goes, and I am Anyana, Goddess of Order. Together, we are the God of Chaos and Order. And that's why their body is constantly fighting. Chaos versus Order. And it's two gods sharing one form. He said, since the beginning of time, we have fought within ourselves for supremacy. What is the truly more powerful source in the universe? Is it chaos or is it order? Life or death, light or dark? And when the others 
chose to create this universe, create their universe, so long ago. And we saw them poke through the veil. We felt that it was time to finally answer that question. Entering through as this new universe created, we broke ourselves apart, creating these artifacts and spreading them onto this, or placing them onto this world. And setting in events over millennia that would bring us to create this merged world. A world of perfectly ordered chaos. They then explain a couple of different things to the characters that they did not know. Number one, this isn't a world. What they stand on now is a new plane of existence within itself. That's why there's no moving stars. It's not rotating around a sun. There are actually multiple suns that circle it in perfect unison. Um, it's a flat world. Massively so. And the southern ocean that they're in is actually the central ocean. And there are massive continents below it that have been basically blocked off through the source not being locked as it was. This is way bigger than they thought. But if you were to take that, that flat world and look at it on its side, flat world, it comes down like a chalice. Much like a, like a goblet, if you will. At the edge of the world, the water literally falls off. And comes to the bottom in like a great bowl and gathers and comes up through the center of the world, coming out through the source. Refilling the ocean and sending the water out through the rest of the world. It also comes up through many different tunnels, creating the lakes and ponds and puddles. Much like in the pirate's cave, where the water was coming up and they didn't know why. The water that allows life on the world flows and cycles through, coming back up from the ground. So if you were to jump in the source, you would literally fall to oblivion, the bottom of this plane. <laughs> so the flat earthers were correct all along. That's a very good reference, Turtle. <laughs> I never really thought. So it's not flat. The top is flat. But remember, it's almost like an apple core where the bottom is smaller. Um, but no one has ever been out to that. Even everything they've done has just been in one section of what is this massive plane. And that's not all. Um, but da, 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 da. Since the merge actually happened, this story that we've just gone through, this play, is only one of many. Many, many times has this cycle gone through again. And in each cycle, different people were brought together, different things arranged, trying to find the perfect combination of events that would lead to the completion of this new plane of existence. This group was that group. All those other figures they saw were failed attempts, and that's what Nylat was leading to. Because had they not succeeded, there would have been a pop, and it would have been the merge again. And it would have been just like the merge was when it first happened, and everything would have been reset. So they've been doing this for years. They saw hundreds of people in this room. How many times has that cycle happened? Doesn't tell them. But that means that in this plane of existence, potentially years, decades, centuries may have gone by since the original merge. So while now this plane is open and unlocked and the gods themselves will be able to have some effect on it, they can't truly walk as avatars 
without special circumstances, like him. This plane is separate from the worlds, and the people that you knew on the worlds where you're from, long gone. Those worlds, some don't even exist any longer, not through our steps. We've pulled a piece of everything we needed, chaos and order, and hurled it together to create this new plane to find out once and for all, chaos versus order, what is the superior force in existence. And you, our faithful servant, have served us so very well. Thank you, my lords, comes a voice behind them, and everyone spins to see Zoltan standing there, the only person out of all the gods and demigods who knew what was actually going on. Because Zoltan serves both of them, both Omnion and Anyana. Together it's Omnyana. That's the merge the name. And when he's serving one, he's not serving the other. So if Omnion says, I want you to go do this, that will screw up something Anyana's doing. He will do that. As if he doesn't know what's going on. He literally is 100% neutral. He serves both of them equally and actually fights against himself in different situations and plans and such as the gods so deem it. Um, but he never betrays to one what the other has told him, uh, but he will betray their actions if commanded by the other. So he is the 100% minion of Omniana since well before this universe existed. The other regular gods did not know that, and boy, would they be pissed. They are going to find out, though. Turtle says, I wish I was here for the beginning of the story. Well, luckily for you, it's all available on Spotify and iTunes or here on YouTube. Although, for some reason, I just found out today, the last episode never uploaded. And I apologize for that. I did not know. So, depending on how well the surgery goes tomorrow, either tomorrow or Tuesday, I will have this episode and the previous episode up. This episode is going to run a little bit long because we're getting to the end stuff. And I kind of want to get this done today because I don't want to leave in the middle of the, the finale. I want you guys to know where we're going, because there's going to be more story in two weeks. I want to know where we're going with that. But Zoltan thanks them, and then Zoltan disappears. Or, you know, smiles at them. And they're pretty irritated, because he knew what was going on the whole time, and he's known all this time. He's been the one choosing the groups, if you'll remember. Each new cycle, he's like, all right, let's put you and you together. What if everybody died? Okay, this time I'm going to bring back Shadow instead of this person. He's trying to find that combination that's going to serve Omniana's goals. While at the same time, Nylat, the only person else who knows what's really going on, is the only person keeping his memory from jump to jump. And so, he's been alive for who knows how long at this point, mentally. Physically, he's the age you know, that he should be, but mentally, he could have been hundreds of years of this. And that's why each time he's trying to get the artifacts himself first, because if he can't complete the spell, become a new god, and then he can rule this new plane instead of freeing Omniana. He knew, he doesn't know Omniana by name and chaos and order, he knows the gist of it. He knows that if he can get it, then whoever's trying to do this, he can take over instead of them. This time, they failed. He's never been able to get all the weapons either. The groups have always been able to keep that from happening. So they, have, they ask some questions, they have a few moments, so on and so forth, and he says to them, when you are ready to leave, step through the central gate and you will be transported back to your ship. The source will then be sealed permanently. No one need ever enter this place again. They add a moment to ask any final questions and such. Um, and let's see. 
And as you head to the, uh, as, as they're finally ready to go, Michael's finally awake, they healed him, so on. They're all getting ready to leave. As you head to the gate, Omniana smiles at you and says, Goodbye, chosen of the gods. I look forward to seeing what you will do with this new world. And with that, you step into the central gate and into the light. Uh, Aji says, hey guys, is Mergel's stream going to end soon? We've probably got 25 minutes at most. I'm going to kill it by 11. Uh, maybe a little less. I'm, right now we're just kind of going over, the rest of it now is just called Going Home Epilogue. So now we're going to kind of just talk about what's ending. And what that means for these people. So, when they unlock the central gate, the merge is not undone. Obviously. There's do they want to try to go back to their old lives? They don't know if those lives or if those people even exist. Is there a way to leave this plane and get back to that plane? They could probably research it, but at this point, knowing what they know, most of the characters decide that this is going to be their new home. They all decide to stay here. Because why gamble everything to go back to a place where no one you knew lived anyways? Now they have loved ones and friends and places here, responsibilities, people like Artemis, Darsh has got his islands, so on and so forth. But as each of them goes through the portal to go on the ship, they don't end up right on the ship. Each one actually ended up in a different place. And for just a moment, each, well, in time, each one of them stands before the god that they worship, and they have a private conversation with those gods. Because now the gods are aware, now that this has been done, gods now understand everything that's happened as well. The gods now have access, except for they can't get in the source either once Omniana shuts it. Um, only Omniana can get in and out at that point. I don't know if Zoltan can, or Kenny. We'll see. But Omniana is going to seal it so even the gods can't get in. The gods are like, you know, you were my chosen at the beginning of time. I touched, you know, you're the one that I, so on and so forth. And not everybody ends up with the god that they think they're going to end up with. That's important. So you don't know who everybody, when they, oh, yeah, I, I saw God, me too, and I got to talk to him in this and that. And some people, it was a very solemn experience, especially the clerics, and they're like, yes, I got to see my God, but it's not something I want to talk about. It's a private moment between me and my Lord, or my lady, or whatever the case may be. So um, there was some interesting stuff there for the future that the characters got to hear individually, and I took them separately for each character and had those conversations uh, for seeds for the future. Um... But then, once again, they walk through the portal. Uh, the, the one thing I'll mention out of all those is Dandy has always been a worshiper of, um, as most Kender are, of uh, uh, Maleka, which is the goddess of feast and harvest. And Dandy got to tell all of her stories, and the god just listened there attentively. And that was the, the thing Dandy ever wanted of anybody to get to tell and share her stories without people telling her to shut up. And... Uh, it seemed like she got to sit there for hours before she finally went through. But to each of them, they were literally just a moment, and they appear back on their ship, and then they get to head home. Which they then proceed to go home. The other ship sails off and is not seen again. The trip home is uneventful, and everyone is in high, if not a bit of morose spirits. Having ample supplies, you they elect to bypass Kronayar and head straight to Paxawal. Pulling into port in just a little over six weeks since leaving the source, you see not much has changed. The port maintains its regular hustle and bustle. The crew being paid the day before disembarking, the ship once it's moored. Many have signed on to stay with her on her next voyage. Darsh will be looking to replace any that did not, including the drow that died. 
Turtle says, you don't have to read this out loud. Oh, oh, <laughs> thank you, Turtle. <laughs> Darsh sees that everything is put to place while Rokar sets tab with the harbor master. All of their gear is uh, packed up and ready to go, and you all meet on deck. Tobias and the Smage are preparing to leave and go back to the tower. Goodbye, my friends, he says, embracing each one of you in turn. Please call upon me before you leave the city so we may say our farewells. The mages then head back to their tower, leaving everyone else on deck. So each person kind of had a little bit of time. They'd been preparing stuff. I'd been seeding stuff for a long time. And what happens in this situation, I'm going to kind of go over the, the base of it. Um, when they return to the temple... Um, they get some bad news. Both Brother Bart and both Brother Lycos have been seriously injured. Mara will advise them, Sister Mara, that they were attacked where they were keeping the box and the box of Pandora has been taken. They're healing up now. They didn't die, but they were overpowered, though they don't say by what. Rafe and Fig leave. Rafe agrees to fly Fig uh, back up to New Gullyville, at least to the border of it. The Hippogriff won't go into the dead magic zone. They say goodbye to Figgy, and Rafe, uh, along with uh, them, uh, fly off, and they go to do their thing. Uh, as I mentioned before, Mara, again, agrees that uh, Artemis has decided that she is going to build a temple where the small temple was. Uh, she's going to build a much larger temple there that will allow her to... Um, use the magic waters, if you will, uh, to its greatest potential to help those. There's a lot of people up there that can need protection uh, and could use her healing hand. At the same time, um, Mercy has decided to make that land her home as well. She had had what she didn't know was a dream or a daydream or a vision of a castle on that hill overlooking the right lake, but she's decided that um, she and Artemis have decided to, to claim that land. Now, other than... Thank you, Skylar, for the sub. Appreciate that. Um, the forest itself doesn't really belong to anybody. Lars and Wade, if anybody, they lived in it, but no one really owned anything other than that land. A lot of that land, like I said, belonged to that old kingdom and no one lived there. It was royal lands. You weren't allowed to hunt and all that kind of crap. Um, so they've decided to claim the lake and the area around it. Uh, Mercy in the hope of building a small keep there. Uh, maybe building a, s a small group of uh, followers and soldiers and such in a way of to finally defend and protect those towns that have never had anyone to protect them. That's been an area that for its existence has always been treated poorly and abused and pillaged and overtaxed. And it's a spot where Mercy feels here's the people, her whole life kind of people she's wanted to protect people that need her the most. Um, and now that she has several kind of knights her her people that are going to help her with that, she's going to try to build a keep there. And that way, again, her best friend, she's going to be right there with Artemis. Artemis is going to claim the temple and the lands around the temple. She's going to claim basically the other section of the lake. And that way they're right next to each other um, to kind of be with each other because they're best friends and so on and so forth. Um, let's see. Um, ba -ba 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 -ba. Darsh... Um, is decided to do what we all thought he's going to. He's going to start trying to build a merchant's building business. He's going to try to go between the kingdoms, Thorman, Arduel, Kronar, Paxawal, um, and he's going to try to use his islands as a relative as a hub where he can keep stock and such and as a home base. Even though it's a little off the grid, um, he's decided to do that. Dandy and Michael 
are the ones that no one else knew really what they were going to do. And they've been talking a lot over this trip on the way home and after speaking to their gods and so on and so forth, um, Michael still has his quest to destroy undead. Um, it's something that he was honest. He's like, I, you know, I love you and I want to be with you forever, but at the same time, I have to do this and I don't see that ever stopping. Um, and Dandy agrees to join him on that quest because while they're also hunting undead, they're also looking for that one specific drow that she's been looking for for a long time. Uh, but she agrees to join him on that quest, and so they're going to travel, and they're going to stay in touch and such. They're going to travel out, but they're, uh, they've decided to go out and continue that themselves. Darsh, upon hearing this, decides to give her the original ship, the Miss Dandelion giving them a base of operations to travel throughout these waters as well um, as they need it. Um, and his, she's his little buddy. Uh, so he gives her that ship, uh, which she then crews and such. Uh, they get crew. So while he's getting the, the uh, Morgenstern set up and already looking at potentially looking to getting uh, some more ships specifically built uh, and more ships, because uh, they've got some wealth there, some more smaller ones. Um, you can't take on work if you don't have a way to do it. Dandies and Michael are going about built, retrofitting that ship with the gear and stuff they'll need and getting themselves a crew. Um, which she does. And she gets a couple named minions as well on the boat, which we'll learn of in the future. We don't cover them now, but she gets a couple regular crewmen, a first mate that's taken on as well. Um, Mara um, directs Mercy and Artemis to uh, Dublin Stone Mover, who is a dwarven uh, company in, in Paxwall that does a lot of the building and such. Um, and the temple was going to continue to work as a bank until they are at a point they want to move all their money back up north. Um, and so they are going to hire him to basically come and build the new temple and the keep. So they're going to be having two huge con construction things built at this time. You know what I mean? We're going to build a castle. We're going to build a temple. We're going to need a lot of people for this. They've got a realm gate really close by that they can port backs in from Poxable. Uh, so that's something that they're going to be working on um, as well. So while this is going on, of course, early on, after they go back to their house that they have there. Um, and as they approach their home, they see a small wagon in front of Molly's homes with her personal belongings inside. Molly's very upset, and they ask her what's wrong. And they say, well, the owner of her home is retiring from, uh, from the seas and wants to live in this home for the rest of his days, so she has to find a new place to live. Business has been slow currently going on, so she's going to look to leave the city and see if she can find work in one of the inns in the smaller towns to the north. Um, the companions instead um, offer her to move into their house. They're not going to be living there. Um, they still own it. They're like, move in right next door. You just take care of the house for us and that secret room that lets us teleport back here when we need to, which they tell her about. And you can just run your business right out of here. You can live here. You keeping it up would be the same as rent. You pay nothing. You just stay here as long as you want. Um, Molly is overjoyed to hear this and accepts that. Um, and so she, she moves into their house as they prepare to move on to their new stages of their life. But that still gives them that house as a base of operation should they need to come back to Paxawal in the future. Um, Darsh chooses the largest, which is the southern islands. And I'm going to be honest with you. Um, there's a fancy name for Darsh's islands, and I will tell it to you when we read about it in the future. Um, but I'm always going to reference it as Darshtopia because they hated that. And so that's what I always called it because it was funny to me. Uh, so Darshtopia is the four islands that Darsh lives on. 
uh, moving forward. That's that's what I call those. It actually has a, a more official name. That's just what I use for reference because I think it's funny. Um, let me see. Their own thing. Darsh, first thing he has, he's. I've got everything down here. How much they had to, it was going to cost them to build a, him to build a dock, home for crew, settlement supplies, warehouses for Mercy. I have all the money down of how much everything's going to cost. I have a ton of stuff here that I went over with them that we're not going to cover today because it's not important. Um, but Dandy does check in with uh, One Eye, who says, uh, sorry to hear that Dandy is leaving, but she's considered a loyal member of the guild and will be able to return anytime she needs to. Uh, always welcome here. And that if and he actually, they ask her and Michael, because she takes Michael with them, um, and he agrees, yes, uh, I will, if I am, or any of my sources here of any type of undead activity, I will do my best to bring it to your attention. So that's something that I will keep an eye out for for you. Um... And also, Dandy makes a special request that Molly's home, their old home, uh, is known as off-limits to the guild, which he's happy to do for them. No one will ever break in or hassle Molly in any way. So, that's that. Now, as they're going through all their procedures and getting all their stuff done, they do visit, Tobias visits them one day and gives them a gift, a magic item that was created by Lemia specifically. Uh, they're called Linked Orbs of Projections. These are magic items that I created. Um, basically, it's a small crystal ball that you can talk to through it. He gives one to all four of them. Basically, it allows them to talk to each other. Okay? Um, Lemia says, wishes them well, and if they, the Brotherhood of Magic can be of assistance to them in the future, feel free to call upon them. Uh, because the amount of information that... Tobias brought back was horrendous about magic and the plane of existence and all that stuff is now easier to find. It's not blocked by the magic. So the mages have just got a whole new plethora of things to work on. Um, and so there's that. But basically they set it up as a group, much like um, you'll remember there used to be the Zoltan had given the mirrors to Rafe and Nilat. Once a month they would go to the mirrors and they would have a conversation. These guys agreed to do the same thing once a month on a, or every 30 days, 30 days, they'll all basically talk and see how things are doing, keep up, is everybody okay, anybody have any problems, what's going on in your life, as a way to make sure that everybody's okay. Um, Artemis sets up everything for, so each one of those has, everybody's going to have one of those, it's a way they'll keep track of each other in the future. Uh, Mercy gets everything, there's a lot of money was spent on prepping all this stuff. But, after they got that all set up and everybody figured out what they were going to do, it was time for everybody to move on to those next stages of their life, which meant it was time for some of these longtime friends, for the first time since the merge, to say goodbye to each other, because uh, they were going in different directions. And so I wrote out uh, endings for all of them, and I'm going to read that, and that'll be pretty much the last of the story. Both the Morgenstern and the Miss Dandy line are loaded and prepared to depart. It's early morning, and both Darsh and Dandy are about ready to leave. Mercy and Artemis have come to the docks to see them off. Everyone is excited about beginning the next part of their lives, but also sad that after all these years together, they're finally going their separate ways. Tears in their eyes, the girls all embrace. Then Darsh steps up and embraces each in a crushing hug. Dandy and Michael promise to visit, and Darsh says he's always there if needed. With a final farewell, Darsh, Dandy, and Michael board their separate ships. And then we go into each person's solo ending. I'm going to do them in the order that I read it to them. Darsh walks up on the bridge looking over his vessel. The crew are bustling about and completing their tasks. Doran steps up beside him and also smiles down at the crew. She's a good ship, Captain, and you've got a loyal crew. Darsh nods and returns his smile. 
Are we ready, Mr. Marshlight? That's Dorm's last name. Aye, Captain, he replies, just awaiting your orders. Darsh takes one last look at his friends on the deck, or on the, on the dock, and waves one final time. Take her out, Mr. Marshlight, he says. Dorm, Dorm jumps into action and the crew gets the ship moving. Where will the winds be taking us, cousin, says Rokar, stepping onto the bridge. To glory? Or to our fortunes? Darsh's eyes settle on the vast ocean before him and the limitless possibilities it provides. To the future, cousin, he replies, smiling. To our future. Dandy, uh, climbing onto the Miss Dandelion, Dandy and Michael make their way to the bridge. Lyman? Lyman is their first mate. I did say his name here. Lyman approaches them and says, Everything is ready to set sail, Captain Nettleleaf. Nettleleaf being Dandy's last name. Oh, good! Dandy squeals, excited to see her ship sailing. For several long moments, Dandy and Lyman stare at each other, and Lyman begins to look uncomfortable. Michael leans in and states, I believe he's waiting for you to tell him to set sail, Dandy. Whispers in her ear. Oh! Dandy says, surprised. I forgot! Laughing, she tells Lyman, Let's get this ship moving, Lyman! Set sail! Aye, Captain, Lyman says, smiling. Immediately, ma'am. And with a couple moments, the ship is pulling out of port, lining up behind the Morgenstern. Dandy stood at the back of the ship, waving till her friends were completely out of view and her arm was ready to fall off. Tears fell freely down her little cheeks. Michael's strong arm wrapped around her and she braced him back tightly. Don't cry, my little dandelion, he said, stroking her hair. You'll see them again. But I'm going to miss them so much, she cried, her face buried in his chest. Michael slowly lifted her chin up to his face, bent down and kissed her teary eyes. As will I, my love, he says, but you have many more exciting adventures before you, and I promise we will visit them as soon as possible. Dandy smiled up at him, and I can tell them all about our new adventures, and what adventures they will be, he replied, as they stood there uh, in each other's arms. So that was Dandy's ending, and then Artemis and Mercy together. Once both ships had faded into the horizon, Artemis and Mercy mounted up and made their way back to the temple. Dublin and his advance crew are waiting for them with the first load of supplies and materials. Several low-rank clerics also joined the little caravan, accepted by Artemis as transfers to her new temple. They bid Sister Mary and Brother Ch uh, Chase farewell. Brother Chase is the one who stepped up to take over for Brother Bart while he's healing. Uh, confirming the next meeting date at the Realm Gate. After checking to verify everything is ready, Mercy finally gives the orders to, out, or to move out. It takes several weeks to reach the Valley of Sacrifice and the Realm Gate located there. A lot of time was spent with Dublin, finalizing designs, making changes, but by the time they reach the gate, their plans are complete. Another supply caravan will arrive at the gate in a month, where Mercy plans to meet them and bring them through. Because again, they have a key to open it up, not everybody does. Traveling through the, great, through the gate has not changed since the opening of the Central Gate. It is a bit of a surprise to their companions, who've never had the experience. A moment of sadness hits Mercy and Artemis, remembering how excited Dandy was every time they used the gate. Stepping through the other side, they're greeted by the familiar clearing, its lush green grass, now about knee-high. The wagons follow through afterwards, and you make your way through the clearing to the forest's edge. Greetings, Lady Mercy, a voice calls out from the forest. Riding into the clearing is Wade Owens, a huge smile on his face. Greeting, Wade, she replies. How goes it? Very well, he says, nodding a greeting to Artemis and Ulrich. There have been no sign of any more slavers. The crops and animals are all much healthier, and the rebuilding of the local towns is well underway. 
After receiving a little more information, Mercy sends Wayne on ahead and Ulrich to prepare for their arrival. It takes several more days of travel before Mercy and Artemis finally near the chapel. Uh, let see, there's been a discussion of the cost of a road between the gate and the chapel with Dublin, thinking that will help speed up the process and make it easier to travel. Now, as they finally approach their destination, Mercy and Artemis find themselves discussing their future. There's going to be a lot of work before it's finished, comments Artemis. Yep, said Mercy, but it'll be worth the time and effort. These people can really use our help and our protection. Very true, replied Artemis. We can do a lot of good here, and I look forward to the challenge. Both women smile at each other as they finally can see the chapel through the trees. They can see Quan, Seamus, Wade, Ulrich, and Lars rushing towards them as they enter the clearing. Standing before the temple is Lucas, Misha, and Mia, the smiles and excitement expression on each, uh, expressed on each of their faces and warming their hearts. We're finally here, laughs Mercy, looking to Artemis. Yes, she whispers, we're finally home. And that was the end of that chapter of the campaign, but truly the end of that specific adventure. Um, that story from the Fire Moons through that point was 15 plus years. I mean, all the Darsh and Artemis stuff, that was over four, probably three years, two or three years of playing at that point, maybe four, by the time we got to this point. And I still have so much to go. Um, but that was really what initiated this and what really sets the phase for the future. You can imagine moving forward now, the responsibilities and the, the grander scale things. Artemis has a huge temple. Mercy's going to have a kingdom. Darsh has a ship or two and he's got his own island. Dandy's out hunting undead. You can imagine that bigger things will come to meet these folks as they slowly are building their own way in the new world. Um, but uh, how far in the story do you think you are? Maybe halfway? Maybe? A little less than halfway? To answer your question? It's hard to know. Um, I didn't know this was going to take this long to tell, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, but the freedom to be much more descriptive and, and go into detail uh, has been a phenomenal experience. When I used to tell this story to friends, I would do it in six to eight hours, and I had to just be very broad, cut over all the details. Um, so this has been a lot of fun to be able to go into so much detail. So there's a lot of story left, I kid you not. Uh, some of the biggest stuff has still yet to happen. Uh, let's think about some of the stuff that's out there. There's still that drow out there we don't know about. Draven is still out there. That's a thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's, there's, a, there's more stuff rumbling in the world that uh, is going to affect these people moving on um, for generations. Sneaky hint, maybe. Uh, but that was the end of this adventure. Um, and if I had not got a chance to tell it any other way, if I got to tell no more, this was the big part of the thing that I always wanted to get out there, how it started. The next section to me is just about as important because it sets uh, one of the most, the, the future in place. The next story really sets ahead what's going to be leading them moving forward. The overall arc of the, the next section of the campaign. Uh, Glitch Vision said this would make a best-selling book series, to be honest. I appreciate that. I really do. I always wanted to write it into books. I've never been able to get it on paper as well as I can tell the story. That's always been the weakness there. Um, I just can't get it on paper that way. I'd love to one day get with someone and, you know, try to go through these videos and put it into a story. Uh, but it's one of those things where 
some of it I would have to go change back. Plus, some of these things, if I was to ever write into a book, I'd probably have to change. Since I use so much Dungeons & Dragons stuff, um, I'd very likely have to change it to other names or other creatures to not get sued. <laughs> but uh, it's one of those things. But I've got a lot. Like I said, I've got a lot more. And plus some of the cool stuff as we move forward, it's going to shine lights on some of the stuff that happened in the past that didn't seem important but was way more important. And that's another reason I have a hard time writing it is because I want to write it in a way that doesn't give away what's going to happen in the future. But... I know what's going to happen in the future. I knew that when I created this part. There's some parts like the Draven thing that I seeded that you clearly haven't even touched it again, right? She saw him one more time in RDL in, in, in the marketplace, one time. That was the last time she saw him. That's clearly a big chunk of time. She still got the tattoo. Michael was able to sense that, undead. I mean, there's a lot of clues there that leading up to big stuff. Um, and it's going to only get bigger. So, uh, that being said, I got to have surgery at eight o'clock tomorrow morning. So I'm going to call this a day. We went about 30 minutes longer than normal, but I was very glad that I got to tell this, uh, ending big chunk of the story and get it out. It came across better than I was hoping it was. I was afraid I'd mess it up and it wouldn't be a cool ending, but hopefully you all enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it, please click like, please throw questions and comments down into the, uh, after this or come to the discord channel, which you can find on my website, onlydraven.com.com. <laughs> come on, join the Discord. If you got questions, you'd like more uh, answers about the story, come on in. I'd love to talk about it with you. Um, I'll look at doing a behind the dice video or something here soon. Uh, maybe do something where we can just talk about the mechanics. Because uh, now I, I can cover a lot of this stuff in more detail. Some of it. Some of it I can't because it's still future. But most of it I can cover in detail. The mechanics. Pull up more pictures of maps and things and, and show you how the adventure worked. But um, I am going to call that a day because I've got to be in bed in about 30 minutes. And I still have to eat some more Jello. I haven't had food all day. I've had Jello and apple juice and water is all I've had today. I am hungry. Tomorrow after the surgery on the way home, I'm thinking Burger King chicken sandwich. Original chicken sandwich. Which is the ultimate chicken sandwich. Some of you may disagree and that's okay. You're wrong. But the original chicken sandwich from Burger King is the boss, and that's what I want. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to slide out of here. Um, because I'm in the surgery tomorrow, the audio podcast version may not be up till Tuesday, and I'll get last episodes as well. I've got to go in and see why that one didn't upload. I honestly didn't know until I checked today, so I apologize for that. I will have both of those up by the end of day Tuesday. Um, I will not be streaming tomorrow because of this surgery. I have no expectation of that. I do not plan on streaming, but I will jump in the Discord and chat with people when it's done. Let everybody know that everything went okay. But thank you, all of you, for listening to Merge World, whether it's just today or all the way through. Um, you can go to iTunes or Spotify and search Merge Worlds. Free audio podcast version of these are there, or all these videos are in a playlist you can watch on the channel here if you'd like to see the video so you can see the pictures. I'll get more pictures on the website up this week, including some of the maps and stuff for you to look at in more detail, uh, not sideways. Uh, but I thank you very much for letting me do this. Uh, it means a lot to me to get to share this story. Uh, even if it's just a few people that come by, I know the ones that do are really into it, and I appreciate that a lot. So thank you for giving me this opportunity. Uh, but I hope you all have a wonderful day. Um, I'm going to call that a day, and hopefully I will see you again soon. But most importantly, two Sundays from now, I will hopefully see you for another Merge Worlds D&D Story Podcast adventure where we begin the next phase of our characters' lives. You all have yourselves a wonderful evening, and I will see you very soon. Thanks for coming by.